other than immediate denial of services and the imposition of uniform rules and requesting the Human Services Agency, the Department of Public Health, and the Mayor's Office on Disability to report. Thank you. And the sponsor of the hearing is Supervisor Jane Kim. Thank you, Chair Marr, and um, thank you to the committee for hearing this item. Um, it's good to be with Supervisor Marr and Compos, and this is my first time sitting with Supervisor Christensen. Welcome to the board. Um, this hearing was initially prompted by a drafting process that took place last year um, to create uniform rules for all of our homeless shelters here in San Francisco. Um, during the process, um, it came up that there were disagreements, um, A, about a need for uniform rules for all of our shelters, and of course some questions about some of the specific rules that came up in the drafting process. However, a common ground that came out of this, uh, out of this process amongst all the stakeholders is that the rules highlighted a gaping need in our, shelting, our shelter system. Our shelter system here in San Francisco um, was really designed to approach homelessness as an economic issue. It is a place of safe harbor for individuals that are able-bodied, um, generally younger, um, and healthy that are down on their luck and need a stable bed for a couple of weeks or a couple of months while they get their life back in order. However, we've seen um, both from observation but also through, through the data um, that uh, Department of Public Health um, has been collecting that that is not necessarily the demographics um, that we're seeing in our shelters today. Um, just in uh, Department of Public Health's um, uh, studies and also through our annual homeless count, um, we have found that 61% of all of our chronically homeless individuals state that they have some form of disabling condition. And almost one-fifth are seniors. Our shelters are not built or staffed um, to serve this demographic necessarily, and often our shelter residents have needs that cannot be adequately addressed by our current shelter system. Um, the gap between the services that we are providing and the actual clientele was really highlighted um, through this drafting process, and in particular, um, the rule that was most talked about was uh, rule number 18, which would allow a shelter to review, uh, refuse services or a bed to a client that cannot self-care. Um, examples could be someone who could not get out of bed on their own, um, who, who had needs throughout the night that required assistance. And there's a lot of rationale behind the rule, given the fact that our shelters don't have the staffing, the resources, and the training often to treat or care for this individual that may be disabled or have a serious medical condition. Um, further, we know that there is some discrepancies amongst our hospital system and our care um, that releases patients far sooner than they should be able or releases a patient that if they had a home to go to would have been fine um, stabilizing at home but don't have a stable place on our streets to get well and to get better. Even something simple like a broken leg, if I was uh, excused from the hospital, I could go home, my friends, um, my network of supporters can bring me food and grocery, I can rest in bed for a week as I heal. Um, that is not available for many of our residents that are um, unstably housed or on, or on, on or are unhoused. Um, this is a conundrum, and it has often led to sometimes finger-pointing about who is responsible for the care of, of individuals. And it has led to our shelters calling 911, which is often the most expensive way um, to address this issue. But I think we all agree that no one wants to see these individuals who are our most vulnerable out on our streets because our shelters cannot provide the services um, to address them. And there are two ways that we can choose to respond to this issue. One is by continually trying to push our square pegs through the round hole and keeping the status quo in our shelter system so their shelters are not staffed or resourced sufficiently to serve the most vulnerable men and women in our city. Or um, we can... Um, 
or we can choose to be smarter about how to use our city resources to have the most impact um, to transform the system. I think through the work and over my years here on the Board of Supervisors, um, I'm increasingly realizing that homelessness is not purely an economic issue or an issue of poverty. It is also a public health issue, and we will never be able to help our most chronic and sick men and women off of our streets if we don't invest in a public health system of addressing homelessness. In the meantime, as we talk about resourcing our shelter system, we know that San Francisco is the vanguard of the housing first movement. Um, it is housing is far more cost effective um, than our shelter system um, in supporting our individuals, um, which has led in many ways to us leading to a stagnation of the support that we give to our shelters because it's not the most cost effective way of using each dollar. But even though housing is more cost effective, um, we know that it is um, it takes time and also money to build and to acquire. This is an increasing challenge as housing becomes more expensive, not just for our residents, but also for the city as well, um, to acquire and to rent um, for our most vulnerable residents. Our shelter system is an important component um, to addressing homelessness and can be a safe and stabilizing environment while providing um, a transition as people wait to get into uh, permanent housing. We're hoping that this hearing can really be a discussion on how the city can move forward together um, to really create a system um, and if you want to look at it this way, a product that works for the clientele and the market that we are trying to serve. The reason why I originally called for this hearing on the uniform shelter rules that were being proposed um, by Human Services Agency um, was to really have a discussion about the need. Um, through this time that we've had a number of really productive meetings with our stakeholders, Human Services Agency, um, and Department of Public Health, is that the conversation has really shifted to, well, instead of figuring out rules to address a problem, why don't we figure out some solutions to address that problem? Um, I really want to thank um, Human Services Agency, in particular Joyce Crum and Scott Walton and Kathy Perdue, who took the time to meet with my office, um, as well as um, many of our stakeholders. I also want to recognize Ken Reggio and Kathy Trajari from Episcopal Community Services and Jenny Friedenbach from Coalition for the Homeless um, for sitting down with us um, many, many times um, as we prepared for this hearing to really delve um, both into the proposed rules, but then for solutions to address what the proposed rules have highlighted. Um, I, I want to give some time for departments to present um, before I really go into some of the, um, the ideas and topics that we've discussed. Um, and then, of course, I know that we have many members of the public here um, who'd like to address this committee as well on this uh, really pressing issue in San Francisco. Um, I forgot to mention, Happy New Year. It is the year of the ram. Gong hei fa choi. Sehe ye bok mani padaseo. Korean, may you have much luck and fortune in the new year. I do think it's very appropriate as, a, as we start a new year and a new chapter that we really think about what a new chapter in our shelter, our homeless shelter system would look like and would mean. So um, I do have um, three of our departments that are here today. Um, I, uh, we do have Department of Public Health here. Um, we, um, Joyce Crum will be representing um, Human Services Agency and Joanna um, Fergulli, uh, the uh, Deputy Director for Gr Programmatic Access of the Mayor's Office of Disability is here to present as well. Um, I do have DPH um, starting out the presentation. Um, however, I'm very flexible on the order. Supervisor Kim, can I just ask if Supervisors Campos or Christensen want to make any opening remarks? Then I just wanted to say that I'm really appreciative that um, this hearing is being called, and I know that in conversations with some of the community-based groups, we're doing our best to, to keep this hearing to within 
um, two hours if possible, but I know there's a lot of speakers. I also wanted to say that I appreciate Supervisor Kim's um, approach not to finger pointing, but to really looking at solutions. And I know from the community there's going to be an effort to really um, express the voice and the diverse um, communities that are represented of people that will speak today. Um, also highlighting the stories and the challenges that many homeless people face every day um, and how that may be um, made more challenging by stricter and standardized rules as proposed and not only Rule 18 but also many others. Um, I really appreciate the Coalition on Homelessness focus on restorative practices that will be brought up in the hearing today as well. And um, in many ways, as Supervisor Kim said, not looking at trying to push square pegs through holes, but really looking at flexible, empowering, supportive, and restorative type practices that can really help uh, lift people out of poverty and um, address um, the root causes of homelessness, hopefully, in our city. So thank you to Supervisor Kim, and I'm looking forward to this hearing as well. So thank you, colleagues. I forgot to give um, uh, members of the committee, committee uh, a chance to make opening remarks. Um, are we going to? We are going to start with um, Ms. Crum from a director. I'm sorry, from the Human Services Agency. Thank you for being here. Sure, and um, Gong Hei Fat Choi, and um, thank you for um, having this hearing. I am Joyce Crum, uh, the director of the Housing and Homeless Division for the Human Services Agency. So uh, I do appreciate this hearing, and I appreciate the um, pre-time that we had with Supervisor Kim and then our group meeting that we had with um, Coalition on Homelessness and uh, ECS um, providers. Um, just let me give you a little bit of background. Um, these are not new rules. Uh, in order to have a shelter facility, we have to have rules and these rules uh, actually went into effect 1999 when we established something called the shelter grievance advisory committee and um, when rules are broken in shelters or when an infraction occurs in a shelter you just cannot deny a person access to that shelter it has to be arbitrated and a hearing has to be given so we're not uh, adding any new rules. What we were trying to do uh, with the concern um, that we heard uh, not only from uh, our arbitrators that arbitrate grievances, but during the shelter access work group, although it was not a recommendation out of that group, uh, we did hear numerous times from constituents that the rules in the shelters were not uh, applied fairly. So we undertook this process um, with a collaboration of all of our shelters. And um, we began in July of 2012 gathering all of the shelter rules across all of the shelters in which we fund. We had a series of meetings with our providers along with community meetings to get input from our community stakeholders. And um, we thought we were all on the right track uh, until, I guess it was early December, I got a phone call from one of the executive directors from our shelters expressing concern about um, this, pr this process of standardizing rules. 
So what we found in, in this was that um, each shelter had a set of rules. Although many rules are similar, the language and the sanction period varied. So for instance, in a small shelter, if a rule is broken and it's the same rule that a larger shelter has, the larger shelter might impose a longer uh, sanction versus a smaller one in the um, small uh, shelter. So what we were trying to do was to standardize the rules and give them a range, but having uh, allowing each shelter to maintain its individuality and um, work within that system. So that's why we got to the point of let's look at the shelter rules. Um, we thought we had the buy-in of our shelters during this process. Uh, we understand um, change and we always look at um, criticism as being constructive and to strengthen uh, what we do. So last Friday when we met with the shelters, um, the one shelter and Supervisor Kim and her staff and um, the coalition, HSA made the decision that we would not move forward with standardizing the shelter rules. Uh, we have a shelter director's meeting on Monday and because all of the shelters were not present at that meeting, uh, nor were they a part of a letter that went to my um, director, uh, we are go going to have a discussion with them on Monday, but we will not um, proceed with standardizing the rules as I mentioned to you on Friday. So um, what came out of the meeting on, fr on Friday, thank you, um, were two specific issues that um, is bigger than HSA itself. And uh, it was the rule around um, clients who arrive at shelters unable to self-care and without established uh, support. Um, as Supervisor Kim mentioned earlier, um, shelter staff are not trained to provide self-care. So what came out of the meeting on Friday was um, a small group discussion that once HSA gathered, gathers data. So when an incident occurs in a shelter, shelter providers are responsible for submitting what's called a critical incident report. And it can range from 911 calls to something that actually happened in the shelter that was critical to the operation, the daily operation of the shelters. So we're going to look at six months to a year of data to determine what type of critical incidents have occurred and which, of, which one of those critical incidents uh, surrounds self-care of clients. Because if someone is um, dropped off from a hospital into a shelter and managed to get a shelter bed and in the nighttime cannot get themselves up to go to the bathroom or have an accident, that's considered something critical because shelter staff are not staffed to uh, handle an incident of that nature. Also, um, what's most important in an incident where it's self-care, um, we do have um, the support of the Department of Public Health and their public health nurse who's assigned to our shelters, and that's Kate Shooten. Kate meets regularly with our shelter providers to um, at, um, 
look at um, needs of the clients who the shelters have expressed a concern in that they're not able to care for themselves, that they are fragile, and there's a need for them to be moved to a different location. So we are we have agreed to work on a plan. Uh, I do know that the Department of Public Health will speak to that, but they are increasing uh, more public health nurses at the shelters to help us. Uh, in this uh, delicate situation. So um, with that, that's our presentation today, and I will, I'm here to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you very much, Ms. Crum, and thank you, Mr. Walton, as well. Uh, just a, a couple of uh, questions in terms of uh, uh, when what happens if someone is not able to take care of themselves and the shelter is not able to to sort of address their their needs sort of how does how's that individual usually handled so i know scott talks regularly with um the shelter director so i'm going to ask him okay. to um, provide an answer to that question for thank you, you very much good afternoon supervisors um the rule itself was about the ability to end a reservation, but it's not that that's our only effort. The shelters work very closely with the nurse supports, our, the behavioral health roving team, the SF START team that supports shelters to try to address these issues. Um, in many cases, these clients, because of the critical nature, uh, where the only alternative is to call 911 and they get returned to the hospital, um, which is not an effective solution, but when a client can't move out of bed um, and the shelter staff are not trained to do that appropriately, that is the solution that happens. What also happens, though, is <clears throat> when these clients are identified, there is a great deal of communication between the shelter provider, HSA, DPH, um, and often the hospital, to try to determine what the solution is. Um, we, what we want to avoid is the client being asked at the hospital, do you have a place to go, and saying the shelter, and then they just get returned right back to the shelter. Um, we do work closely with in-home support services, but their hours are limited based on assessment and are not 24 hours a day. So even clients with in-home support services may have problems outside of when they have a caregiver with them. Um. Thank you, and I, I do want to appreciate Mr. Walton and Ms. Crump for the work they do, um, and you've been very responsive to these concerns. So what should be the, I mean, do you have a sense of what should actually happen? I mean, what would be the ideal situation in that case uh, so that the client is not returned to, you know, to the shelter? It's sort of like an, uh, sort of an ongoing cycle. You know, I don't, I don't think... Um, that's a question that HSA can answer, but um, because we do work closely with Kate Shooten, the public health nurse, uh -huh. and DPH, maybe she can offer a response for us. Thank you, Kate. Yeah. <laughs> it's you're you're on the hot seat. <laughs> so the question is, what what do we do when people go to the hospital? What would be the ideal situation? I mean, what what is the the outcome that we want to see, given that? 
you know, right now it's it's sort of a, it's an ongoing cycle, I guess, with the. In, it's very complicated, and each uh, each case is very complicated. So every time I get a um, a referral for somebody who can't care for themselves, I have to come up with a unique plan, and it involves um, a lot of parties. So it's not ideal for people to be 911 out to um, out to the emergency room without some, somebody on the other end advocating because the emergency rooms are, are designed to treat and treat their trauma and nothing gets done. For instance, you know, if you have a chronic issue and you end up in the ER, you're not going to walk out with a follow-up plan and a um, you know, primary care provider appointment. You, you're just going to be patched together. Um, so the ideal situation is that we have advocates like myself, and I, I was going to talk a little, a little bit um, after these guys oh, okay. about um, our right, new sorry. nurses that we have in shelter and what that's going to look like. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So Supervisor Christensen has a comment. I, actually, not a comment. A few, a few questions. Sure. So, so I'm a little perplexed because the, the main question of this hearing to me was should we, um, should we implement uniform shelter rules? And it sounds like that's no longer on the table, so the primary function of the hearing doesn't exist. I mean, I, on that issue, I'm, I guess I do have a comment. I guess I'm a little bit perplexed because the stated problem is that shelter rules are not consistent. But I'm not sure I see why that's a problem. Um, if you have shelters with people of different ages, sexes, mental conditions, physical conditions, if you have shelters of different sizes, then why would you want the rules to be the same? Because shelter clients have the ability to access all eight shelters. They don't just stay in one shelter. So if they're at one shelter and they break a rule and the penalty is different than when they go to a next one, that's what the complaints that we were hearing, that the shelter rules weren't fair. Right. But we, we've passed that. Right. So, so now we're on to another topic, which is nursing care in shelters. One of the um, topics, correct. Right. Okay. So how, many, how frequent is this occurrence? So on average, how many times per shelter, per month or year, do issues related the requiring skilled nursing or medical assistance come up? So that was a question that Supervisor Kim asked us last Friday, and we couldn't provide an answer to her because we need to look through our critical incident reports to track the number of times 911 was called because someone wasn't um, being self, that couldn't self-care. But, but that doesn't tell us which of those calls related to people who came out of a, of a medical facility. Well, in some cases it can. It just depends on how detailed the critical incident report is written up by the shelter. Sounds like a lot of digging. Yeah. Well, no, because we get, we, we are required, we require of our providers to submit monthly critical incident reports, and we, we combine, uh, compile them because they're always discussed at what we call the Shelter Grievance Advisory Committee. So it's not difficult to, to, to do it. It's just sitting down, going through each one to look at that specific 
uh, incident that re, uh, required someone who could not self-care. Okay, so, so at the moment then, a critical incident could be somebody behaving badly or it could be somebody who's been released from the hospital and has gone into the shelter and finds that they, they're not fully recovered. Correct. Okay, so you have to sort through that. Yes. Okay, so then what type of care... I guess maybe you can't answer this mm -hmm. other question is, which is what type of care is then generally required? So For the, someone who can't self-care or... Right. Um, so what, happen, what typically happens next? Um, and I'm, gonna, I'm speaking again for Kate, the, our, our nurse, but uh, what I've heard is someone being discharged from the hospital with a wound injury and they cannot self-clean the wound injury because it's on their leg and they can't reach their leg and they need someone to help them get the medicine to do that. Or someone who's incontinent and can't clean up behind themselves. So, so we're talking about assisted care, right? So we're not talking about the type of services that shelters are generally designed to provide, but we're talking about assisted care for post-surgical or post-trauma cases? Those are some of the um, incidents that we've uh, encountered in our shelters. So it seems to me that this is like the reverse. There's also a reverse problem. So calling 911 to respond to problems in shelters and SROs and housing units is an issue because that level of emergency care isn't always required. Correct. Um, so this seems to be the reverse problem, that then bringing people from a medical facility into the shelter just continues the cycle. Right. So, so are there, I mean, there's San Francisco General, there's Laguna Honda. I mean, what type of medical care can possibly be provided somewhere between the level of a hospital and the level of a shelter, are there intermediate facilities? Supervisor okay. Kim wanted Supervisor. to intervene. Yeah. For yes. I only want to intervene because we have presentations yes. that are going to respond <laughs> to your <laughs> questions. Yeah, yeah. This is merely the first presentation. It is, it is describing the issue that we've confronted with when discussing the proposed rules. So initially, the hearing, yes, you're right, is about the proposed rules to consolidate rules for all of our shelters. Um, through the discussion about how the rules were drafted and some of them, you know, being in existence, you know, we came up with the issue of, well, we know this is an issue. Every night at our shelters, there are people entering our shelter system that cannot self-care. Um, and so knowing that this happens on a consistent basis, and often the response is to call 911 or a nurse, if there's a nurse on site, now that we have nurses in our shelter system, can we develop a more systematic process? understanding that our demographic that are entering our shelter system is sicker than it was 10 years ago and older than it was 10 years ago. So can our shelter system evolve with our clientele? So the purpose of our hearing has shifted from more than a discussion just about the proposed rules to being what is the solution to the, demo, um, to the issue that we're seeing in our shelter system today. And so we do have Department of Public Health here um, to address a lot of the questions that you're answering, but we are still in the process of developing these solutions, and this hearing is really an opportunity um, for us to have this discussion in public and also to hear from members of public um, on their feedback and thoughts on how we can improve um, the system. So there are no answers, and you asked a lot of the same questions that I've been asking over the last couple of months, um, and thank you, Ms. Crump, for being <laughs> 
<laughs> in the hot seat. Um, and so I don't want to make it sound like we have all the answers and there are 10 concrete solutions, but we are exploring some options. And this is also an opportunity for us to talk about re what resources already exist and what we can put together to address solutions to this issue. So through the chair. Yes. Um, I would just yeah, because my question would be, what is the magnitude of the issue? How, so how DPH is going to go through that. They have data for us They'll today. They'll do it. And then um, what are the alternatives to requiring the shelters to be the key point? I guess those would be my, because anecdotal information is interesting, but it's hard to make any decisions based on that. Thank you, Supervisor Christensen. Thank you, Ms. And thank you, Ms. Okay. Crum and Mr. Right. Walton. Yeah. So um, do you want to bring up uh, Department of Public Health? Um, and just to give a little bit of background, um, there is some data that they will be presenting today on the demographics of our homeless population, as well as some of the work that we've done thus far, um, some of the services that exist today to address some of the issues um, that was brought up through proposed Rule 18, in particular around um, self-care. Um, and so thank you for being here today. Thank okay, you. supervisors, my name is Maslena Ogbu, and I'm here for Barbara Garcia and I'm the Deputy Director of the Health Network. And essentially, I think we understand the needs in the shelter, partly because people are aging in place, and so there are lots and lots of health issues that are coming up. And DPH has been involved over the last couple of years trying to come up with solutions to address the healthcare needs in the shelter. And one of the first things that we implemented was actually the medical respite, which is a 60-bed uh, facility on Mission Street. And essentially what medical respite does is that when people are discharged from the hospital, and are homeless. They actually go to medical respite. They can stay there up to 30 to 60 days until they recuperate. Uh, while in the uh, medical respite, we try to make arrangements in terms of the next level of care. It could be permanent housing. It could be they probably maybe end up in the shelter, or it could be in supportive housing. So that's one thing that uh, DPH is working on. We've also tried to expand what we call our medical homes, and part of the medical home system is really to increase same-day access so that if people are in the shelter and needing health care urgently, they can actually go to one of the medical homes. Uh, Tom Waddell is one of the medical homes, and it's open six days a week, and urgent care, no appointment needed at Tom Waddell. But the area that we've invested a lot of time on is really nursing services. Kate has worked with most of the shelters in terms of triaging, assessing, linkage, and all that. And this year, we're actually very lucky in that that service will be expanded to include much more comprehensive services that, than we ever did. So we are very interested in working with HSA, stakeholders, and others to see what type of model of care that we need to put in place to address some of the challenges in terms of people being in shelter and needing self-care. And so that's some of the things that we think is very critical because we're going to get more and more sick people in the uh, shelters and how do we address their needs. So we do look forward to working with HSA and others uh, to address those needs. But I'm going to turn it over to Kate, who has been the nurse for the last five years, four years, uh, looking at uh, the needs and actually working with the shelters uh, to address some of the healthcare needs. And she's also going to expand on the new model that we're trying to put in place. So um, 
Thank you for, for hearing me. Um, so there are uh, sicker, older people every year, just, uh, you know, seems to be getting, uh, the needs seem to be getting greater, and shelter staff are not uh, equipped to take care of, of sick people. They can't transfer them, they can't shower them, um, and they shouldn't, they're not, be, they're not trained to do that. Um, so when something is uh, concerning in front of them, they, they really don't have any choice but to call 911. That's it. Um, so, so that became a big issue. Um, and as people got sicker, you know, we really started to realize we've, we've got to uh, make some interventions. So we, so we put together two um, very thoughtful work groups. One was called 911 in Shelters, and the other was uh, Sicker Clients in Shelter, a real fancy name. Um, and, you know, we really pulled together the experts. Um, in the 911 group, uh, it was Shelter Health, which is me, uh, the, the uh, fire department, EMS, HSA, and the HOT team to strategize on how we could um, help people get to the appropriate level of care versus 911. Because I, as I mentioned, uh, going in and out of the emergency room really doesn't help anybody, especially the client, unless it's truly an emergency. Um, the sicker clients in uh, shelter work group, um, I had to write it down because we had so many players. We really pulled together as a city, and I just want to say that there are some really amazing people um, who are at the table, and we really, really tried to work together. It was DPH, HSA, shelter directors, and supervisors, the placement team. We brought in San Francisco General um, uh, Social Work, Discharge Planners, Utilization Management, um, Respite, the START team, HOT team, and IHSS. And we all met and came up with recommendations, and one of the common denominators was having a nurse in shelter. So. When clients present and they have difficulty with self-care, what, what I've been doing, um, just as one person sort of wheeling and dealing uh, to put a band-aid on it till we got our nurses, and our nurses will be doing this in real time, real life, uh, two full-time positions in the biggest shelters, um, is taking case by case and figuring out what to do. So it's... It's not always a non, you know, it's not always a, an undoable situation. There's a lot of interventions that can be done, like leveraging in-home supportive services. Um, when we talk about wound care, um, we can leverage health at home nurses to come in. Um, and so, the, so what I've been doing, and the goal of the nurses, uh, will be to stabilize clients to prevent them from bouncing in and out of, of ineffective levels of care, um, and so they can have a safe and dignified healthy shelter stay. Um, that's not always possible, and um, sometimes we do have to utilize 911. Um, the other piece of that is the advocacy when that happens. So without the advocacy, people do bounce in, in and out of the hospital, and you know there's not a lot of dialogue and thoughts. So for instance, if I have someone who's decompensated, and the shelter sends them out and notifies me, or if the shelter nurse, you know, is, is aware that somebody goes to an emergency room, they can advocate uh, with the hospital and explain the situation and come up with a solution. Um, sometimes it's admitting people, which is difficult, um, until we can get an appropriate level of care. Um, it'll also be a lot of prevention, um, so people don't get to the point where they're unable to care for themselves in shelter. Uh, a lot of chronic disease management, medication management, um, the nurses will be on site full time, just uh, 40 hours and 36 hours, uh, one at Nextdoor and one at MSC South, 
um, to be on call for whatever comes up, to do short-term case management on the really um, challenging cases, working um, with the SART team as an interdisciplinary group, interagency, interdisciplinary group with, um, you know, the same goals. So social work and medicine together to come up with some um, sustainable solutions for, for folks. Um, I think I summed it up. <laughs> If you have any questions. <laughs> Thank you. I, I did have one question. Um, so to Kaden, Ms. Agbu, uh -huh. how many staff do you have to, to do this amount of work that you're talking about? And are the task forces looking at what additional staffing might be necessary for this? Um, it seems like there are a lot of people with disabilities in addition to the, the aging population. Um, but I'm just wondering, is there adequate staff and what are the staffing needs? Well, I think we just expanded the nursing um, service from, I think it was Kate being... And, and a dietitian. <laughs> <laughs> to actually having additional nurses. And so we will be evaluating it. The thing is that all our services are not just concentrated in the nurses. We have the hot team, which is probably going to increase to about 70 people helping with that. And then we also have the medical respite, which is almost 27 individuals dealing with those who have been discharged from the hospitals. So there are quite a, uh, a lot of staff. It's just that now we need to go and sit down and look how effectively are the different programs working together. So uh, with the, this pilot, hopefully we'll be able to evaluate, do we need additional nurses? But for now, I would look at it as a pilot to see how well we do. And again, we need to go back and look at the numbers because that's something that we don't have. We don't have the numbers of people who are sick. Uh, I guess the incidents can tell us, but we need to figure out how many people actually are in the shelters that need, uh, who would need nursing care or more advanced nursing care or, what, or whatever, and then we can actually figure out the staffing to match that. So uh, hopefully that's part of what we'll be doing with HSA as they reevaluate the model that's needed to address. Yeah, thank you, okay. Supervisor Kim, and then Supervisor Christensen. Um, can okay. I just say one thing on that? Um, something I failed to mention is the HOT team is um, moving towards a more medical model. Yes. And uh, my team is going to be working under the same uh, department as them and working together and, uh, with transport to urgent care. I mean, really working together as a, as a medical team. So, yeah, the collaboration is going to, th I think, have a, um, a really decent impact. Thank you. Supervisor Kim? Um, thanks again for the presentation. I, and I apologize that I didn't ask you for this, but I was hoping that you would bring the medical um, the health numbers. assessment that uh, our office had requested back in um, 2012. Um, I know the data is a little bit old, mm -hmm. but it certainly was helpful in forming our office on the demographics of the population um, that's in our shelter system. And, and I, I know that we need to do another assessment again to get more fine-grained details on the actual um, services that we need to provide um, at our shelter. But I, I do think that that data was really informative. Um, even in looking at uh, what what the current demographics are, and and I have I have the presentation here um, or the data that you had presented to our office last year, just on some of the needs. Um, even that 59.5 percent of our 
um, clients in all of our shelters um, at some point use our, our, our medical emergency mm-hmm. um, system. And, and that's a really high percentage. We're not talking about one client or two client. This is a broad swath of our population that's homeless. So when we think about what it means to relook at our shelter system um, and understanding that our shelter system is not set up to actually um, address this clientele, um, instead of you know hoping that this changes, you know, I think we have to face reality and adjust the types of services and the staffing that we have um, in place. Um, I know that our office worked really closely with Barbara Garcia. Um, in the last fiscal year in the budget process to fight for two full-time nurses um, that would just rove at night under yes. under your um, directorship um, in our shelter system. Um, having spent a night in one of our shelters, I think that was one of the most gaping needs that I noticed um, was that there was no one on site um, to help the clients that I saw, and even myself if I had medical needs, and how important it is to have nurses on site. Not everyone has to be at a hospital. There should be some folks that continue to remain in our hospital. Um, um, but unfortunately, you know, there are people that are going to be in our shelter system mm-hmm. anyway, you know, just kind of addressing that as a reality. So I think some of those data pa- points would be helpful to my colleagues on the board that haven't kind of delved through the issues um, or had been had the access to the data um, that we have seen. Um, I also remember close to six. I think over 50 percent of our clients are between 40 and 59. Correct. I think that was a pretty stunning number mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people. Um, and I know that DPH has been talking a long time about how um, people are aging in place on our streets, um, and so the need becomes greater as people get older. And of course, when you're 40, your body may be a lot mm-hmm. older. Um, than most 40-year-olds that are not living on our streets. Um, So moving kind of towards what some of that solutions would be, um, kind of ideas that we might have to improve our shelter system, um, I think is really important. And it's also important to acknowledge that this is not the expertise that HSA has, and they have historically been the overseer um, that manages our shelter system and how important that partnership with Department of Public Health is. Um, I am really excited, though, that... um, we are working on expanding the medical respite shelter on Mission and 10th, mm-hmm. um, with St. Anthony's moving from that site um, to Golden Gate and consolidating all of their um, staff and services on that site. Um, we are looking to expand the medical respite shelter to double, um, almost double. So there's currently 29 beds. Um, we are looking to expand another 20 beds um, in, a, in our medical respite shelter to serve our neediest, our most high need um, population, which I think will be important. But I think what became really clear for me in the discussions that we have been having is that we need more services in our shelters as well. Um, those 20 beds are going to get filled very quickly, um, and we're going to need some services on site. And it, I think it would be helpful you know, to hear from DPH maybe one or two kind of concepts or ideas that we've been floating um, that could work um, in our shelter system. Okay. And then um, perhaps then we can go to Ms. Raguli um, from Mayor's Office of Disability um, after supervisors ask questions. Thank you. Supervisor Christensen. I'll be quick. Um, so at some point we're going to learn. Uh, so the, the medical respite shelter, great idea. Uh, you mentioned that there are facilities currently that offer up to 60 days transitional uh, yeah, We have care. a medical respite, which is on mission, and that's what Supervisor Kim is talking about expanding. Mm-hmm. So it has about 60 beds. And so if people are um, discharged from San Francisco General and still need additional care, they are actually discharged into the medical respite, in, and it's about 60 beds. So that's it for the city in, in that facility. So, so that's, that's one need. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to applaud, I think the the movement to offering skilled nursing aid 
at, a, at locations where it's so much needed is such a welcome development. Um, and you mentioned that you'd be collecting data for this pilot program. I'm sure that you will be looking. Uh, I, I think there's two things, not only the resources and the money that are saved mm -hmm. when emergency services are diverted to non-emergency, but also I think about the care that people must receive and how much better it must be to have someone like yourself looking after the health needs of somebody than having the medics show up and simply cart them off to another location. So it's a development that I find extremely welcome, both for those who need the services and for the taxpayers of the city. Um, but it does sound like this intermediate care need uh, needs to be addressed. And, and I can see that the shelters are not set up to do that. So I'll be interested in following um, what, what can be established for that interim need. Thank you. Thank you. Supervisor Kim, are there other? Yes, our last um, city presenter is um, Ms. Fraguli um, from Mayor's Office of Disability. Um, and I should just state um, the Mayor's Office of Disability has been such a huge resource over the last couple of years as we've been talking about um, our shelter system and have been um, advocates, um, particularly for the growing population of our individuals without homes that are disabled. Thank you, Supervisor Kim. Thank you, um, members of the committee, um, about having this hearing and about inviting, for inviting our office to speak on this issue. Um, our office, from the beginning, has been involved in the shelter work group access uh, meetings, and we have been supportive of HSA's effort to create a set of uniform rules. Part of it is because, again, for the people with significant disabilities that we hear from and um, the anecdotes and situations that arise, um, many of our folks have some cognitive limitations either due to age or the repeated trauma that they experience through the streets. And statistics show us that people with disabilities have a higher incidence of violent actions perpetrated upon them. So providing a secure and safe environment, especially when they're not able to defend themselves, um, has been a key issue for us. Also consistency had been important, and that's precisely why our office um, was involved in trying to create a uniform language. Um, because again, for folks who may have cognitive issues or um, memory issues, um, having that understanding was important. However, I realize now that we have shifted the conversation and um, we had provided um, information at the initial um, reiteration of the uniform rules to provide clarity about people who are unable to self-care without support. Um, we have uh, heard a lot of um, incidents from people with disabilities themselves and other non-disabled residents who come to our office and say uh, that a shelter is not the proper environment for folks who have been dropped while being tried to be assisted by shelter staff, for folks who are uh, completely decompensating in the shelter because there's no stability and proper support. Um, I'm very interested in the discussion about the nursing system, nursing care, and the medicalization of the homeless outreach team. Um, however, I'd like to caution you that um, San Francisco and the nation in general, uh, based on the Olmstead decision from the Supreme Court, um, has chosen 
to, has seen as a civil rights issue the non-medicalization of disability. People with disabilities should not be first thrown into a hospital or receiving nursing care, but they should be having a specialized case management that uh, creates a community support system. Um, what we would like to propose is that this body uh, um, brings um, the involvement of the um, Department of Aging and Adult Services because they are the primary experts on community living supports that people with um, that seniors with cognitive impairments and people with chronic disabilities are able to, to do and provide in the city. Um, as Supervisor Kim very eloquently said, um, a homeless shelter is not a place to stabilize and improve the quality of living. Um, currently, the medical respite sh shelters are slated for individuals who have a medical health crisis that's expected to finish. So a person who has had a surgery in a wound that is expected to heal is the individual who would go to this shelter, have uh, um, two months, and then be able to return and uh, move on with uh, their struggle to end homelessness. However, that leaves out a huge number of people with disabilities in our sh shelter system right now who don't have that option. These are the people who have aged with a disability, who have had a disability for a long period of time, and they were stabilized in their homes, and then due to the economic and housing crisis, they end up on the streets, and they are completely unable to access their support systems. Um, In-home support services has rules about how many hours you can get if you actually don't have a home. So um, being able to access those services in a shelter system is almost impossible. Having a person on kidney dialysis who can be very well maintained and with very little nursing or medical cost oftentimes get exacerbated because the dietary situation in the shelter is difficult. They may have transportation um, problems in getting into their um, into their. Um, dialysis center. Um, so I would like to caution us all in uh, creating more <coughs> of a wider system of community supports that's aimed at looking at people, in, at keeping people in their communities rather than expanding beds for Laguna Honda or extending beds for another medical shelter, which a lot of our chronically disabled folks are unable to access anyway. Um, I would suggest um, if I were to come up with a solution off the top of my head, a transitional housing stabilization system with appropriate case management that would be at stabilizing the individual and accessing the supports and really a fast-track placement to permanent housing. Um, other than that, our office is here to support and to be part of the conversations. We were not uh, invited to the conversations with the Department of Public Health around those um, uh, 911 meetings or other issues, uh, but we're here to work with everyone, and we would encourage you again to include the Department of Aging and Adult Services. Thank you. I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, Supervisor Christensen, Supervisor Kim. Uh, thank you again for, for being here, and we'll make sure that Mayor's Office of Disability is included um, in future meetings, and I apologize that you weren't included in some of the previous meetings around this issue. Um, you described some of the barriers um, that disabled individuals face in our shelters today, and of course what the ideal system would look like. Um, 
does your department or office have a sense of the numbers um, beyond, I guess, the client, uh, folks that come into your office and describe the situation? Um, and if you don't, too, you know, being that the reality is that transitional housing has such a long waiting list, it's been even more challenging um, for the city to get more units um, online because of the cost. Mm -hmm. um, we're also competing on this really crazy rental um, and housing market as well. Um, can you describe a vision of what a healthy shelter system would look like, being that realistically so many members of um, this community will end up in our shelter at a, at a certain point um, in time? Um, I would think um, if we were to talk about a different type of shelter system, um, I would focus on a smaller scale shelter system um, with a lot more case management that is disability specific or aging specific. Um, again, I'm thinking um, of the, um, the unit at, um, I'm sorry, the intake unit at the Department of Aging and Adult Services, um, where they have a lot of case managers that are specifically trained to deal with aging issues and chronic disability types of issues. I would, of course, think of a congregate shelter or environment that is smaller, that is accessible, and that provides a lot more individualized services and connecting people with the services they need. And perhaps some modifications to the in-home support services rules um, and working again mm -hmm. with that department to be able to provide access to support along with paratransit assistance, those types of services that people really need to thrive in the community. Thank you. Supervisor Campos. Thank you very much. And I also want to thank the uh, Department of Public Health for its work. Um, just a, a question, and I don't know if it's a, it's probably a dumb question, but it's something that I'm, I'm trying to figure out how this works. If you have someone who has a chronic serious illness uh, who happens to be homeless uh, and they're staying in a shelter, but there are certain treatment that is needed uh, where you know their presence in that shelter uh, and lack of access to some of the, the facilities or whatever it is um, is a problem at what point do you decide to hospitalize the person at, at what point do you decide to do more than just having them in the in the shelter system not only in terms of you know what's the the right thing to do for that patient, but also uh, I would imagine that the cost of care, if the person gets worse, is also an issue. So I don't know how that works, but I, I don't know who would have uh, something to say about that. But that um, So the, that's a really good uh, question, Supervisor. Um, it's a, it's a situation is an individual situation, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have plenty of clients right now who, with HIV who are living in our shelter system. And I am not a medical expert, but I would dare to say that either inconsistencies in their medication schedule or um, being in an environment that is not particularly easy to clean or keep safe or consistent can have negative impacts on their health. Um, and at some point, again, it really needs some medical individualized assessment as to whether this is the um, appropriate environment. So maybe, maybe we can hear from the Department of Public Health right. on sort of how that works. Are there guidelines that you follow uh, 
Yes, I'd love to answer that. Thank you. Um, so the problem is, uh, is there's various levels of care. Um, you need uh, to be very sick to be admitted to the hospital. Um, there's a whole group of people called utilization management, people who, you know, their job is to make sure people don't get admitted unnecessarily. When I started nursing almost 30 years ago, there was something called social admissions and people could get admitted and held safely until so we could figure things out, and those days are over. Um, then you've got places like Laguna Honda, and those are skilled uh, facilities. So you have to have a skilled nursing need or an OT or a PT need with um, a, a path to getting to improving, um, getting some therapy and getting back on your feet. Uh, then you've got respite, and respite is wonderful, but it's really designed uh, for acute illness. So you have pneumonia or a broken leg. You go to respite, you get better, you leave. And there's a reason for that, because if, if everybody who was placed in those beds had chronic needs, they would just fill up. So that's a model of care. So there's a, the gap that we have is uh, for chronic care issues, mm -hmm. uh, for people who just need some custodial assistance. And you're right, IHSS, we've really been leveraging them more and more in the shelters, but there's a limit to how much time, even if you're housed, there's a limit to how much time you can get. You, no, no, nobody has a 24-hour IHSS worker. So if you need 24-hour custodial care, even for a short time until we can figure out where you're going next, there's really no place for you. If you're, um, say, you know, if you're, if you're quadriplegic, for instance, and it sounds like, oh, Laguna Honda will, will take them. Not necessarily, because the, the therapy's not going to change that. So, I mean, Can I ask you how many people, do you have an estimate of how many individuals we're talking about will fall? Who, who need custodial uh, uh, yeah. care and to be held safely in, in, in a place until we can figure something out? About two a week, two, to, two a week to two a month. Uh, of, of pretty significant cases, and it is quite a dance to try to figure out um, where people can go. I've had, um, I won't name the hospital, it's not San Francisco General, but um, a hospital that discharged a, a gentleman who was 500 pounds in an electric wheelchair, and there was no bed to accommodate him in the shelter, and he was living in a drop-in center until we could figure something out. That's right. So there's a lot of... Do you, do you have a sense of what the total population that might be in that category is out there? On any given day in, in shelters? Yeah. I mean, as I mentioned, I, I mean, I don't have, I, I, I can only tell you the, the, the people who are referred to me, and that's not everybody. That's just the people who happen to know to get in touch with me. So I don't know that my data I mean, is so scientific, but as I mentioned, two to I, I, four. I, I actually, I know that there's a lot, there are many people here who are here for public comment, I, I, maybe we can follow up at some point. I, I, I think it would be good to, to know and track that uh, because those folks are, at some point, you're dealing with them in the system, right? Whether they mm -hmm. get so sick that they end up, you know, being picked up, you know, going, taken to the ER or, but I, I think if there's a way of tracking that, and I mean, we certainly are uh, spending money uh, and maybe it's not the most cost-effective way or the most humane way, more importantly. More importantly. So that would be uh, just something that I would be interested in. But I know that we want to get to public I think comments, the critical so. incident um, report analysis would be um, probably the best way because, because I, as I mentioned, I don't get every single person in that situation referred to me. So I think that would be probably better data. Thank you. Yeah. 
Um, I also wanted to add, if uh, um, the committee would allow me to, um, the concept that the issue of disability is very expansive and very different. Um, for example, if we have a blind person who has been blind and knows how to navigate um, properly using mobility orientation training, is a very different story from somebody who has been homeless and as a result of uncontrollable uncontrolled diabetes has just become blind, has come to the shelter, and has no idea how to manage living in the shelter. For the first, for the first individual I described, um, it would be um, simple to just show them, give them a quick tour of the facility, and they're able to function on their own. For, and it's just an issue of, of uh, reasonable accommodation. For the second individual, um, he does not need necessarily nursing care or custodial care. He needs connection to a proper training facility to learn how to be blind, essentially. So those, the expenses are completely different. The needs are very different. The same issue happens with a person with a mental health disability. Oftentimes we have so many folks on our streets who are going into a shelter and because of the living environment, because of the lack of training around how to handle people with um, significant mental health disabilities, they get decompensated and they have to be 5150. Um, so uh, again, it's not just about people who are unable to self-care by going to the restroom or using the shower, but it's about all those other types of self-care. Supervisor Kim. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Fergoli. Actually, my question is for um, Department of Public Health again. Um, and then I, I would like to move on to public comment. <laughs> so um, I, I just want to appreciate a lot of the questions about what the need is today, um, just because I, I feel like we have a sense of that already, mm -hmm. um, and we really need to analyze some of that, um, the data, like the critical incidents. I, I guess I'm curious what we did with the medical health assessment that we did back in 2012, 2013. Um, and what we did with the data that we got from that. I'm looking at it right now. You know, number one on the list was, of course, depression. 44% of our shelter clients have expressed that they go through depression. Um, even 29.2% uh, psychoses. Um, hypertension for 24%. Chronic pulmonary disease, 17%. Liver disease, 15%. Diabetes, 8.7%. Um, We've been collecting some of this data already to get a snapshot of who stays in our shelters, and I'm curious what we did with that data from that point on. Marcelina, can you? Well, I think uh, that data was part of the decision to decide to go with a nursing model because some of those things are also chronic illness and didn't actually require a doctor helping out. But more importantly, when we moved into ACA, the problem is that then everyone was getting a medical home. So unfortunately, we were trying to focus on ACA and didn't really spend a lot of time trying to figure out because the assumption is that people have medical homes. But I think now that we have a breeder around ACA, then we'll probably start looking at how we use that data mm -hmm. to inform what we're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And also, I need to say that that also helped inform the discussion around moving um, 
the HOT team from just being a transportation program to being a program that okay. engages people. So those are some of the things that we've done with the data. So we will go back and relook at the data, right. and it will help us in terms of the new discussion around what's the best model. Uh, in working with HSA, uh, homeless advocates, and other stakeholders. So we, we are looking at the data. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I want to appreciate that because I, yeah. I, I feel like Department of Public Health has a lot of great data already, mm -hmm. and I just want to make sure we're utilizing it. Yeah. And if it's not the right data that we need, you know, what is the right data that we need to figure out what services? I know every case is a unique situation, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, this is you know, a large, it, it's a very large issue for our shelter providers and for us as a city, and I, I feel like we do need some concrete ways of, of addressing large categories mm -hmm. um, and make sure that they're getting the services that they need. And um, if the data that we have now isn't helping us to figure out what the services are, it would be good to know what data we do need to collect um, to be able to inform the work with DPH. Um, but I, I did want to mention, you know, um, in our conversations with um, Director Barbara Garcia, um, she's, you know, talked about a lot of great ideas, and, and certainly we're very interested in one of our shelter providers potentially partnering up um, and doing a pilot with maybe one of our health clinics, um, local health clinics, to be able to provide additional services on top of the three nurses that we have in our shelter system. And I know that was something that we discussed last Friday as well, and, mm -hmm. you know, we'd like yeah, to continue to explore. Yeah, we are looking at that, and hopefully we'll also work with HSA so that based on the hearing, all the questions that are coming up, maybe that can be integrated in terms of the analysis that they are doing so that we can tease out really how many people would need help because like Kate is saying one or two, but we need to figure out is it one or two that mm -hmm. needs that level of care. So maybe we'll include that in terms of the data that they'll be collecting and Thank that will inform us. Thank you. Thank you, you Ms. Agbu. So we're going to open this up for public comment right now. I know there's a number of speakers. Supervisor Kim's going to facilitate this. We have to ask people to stay within two minutes. Um, at 30 seconds to go at about 90 seconds, there's a soft buzzer that will go off, and then there's a louder buzzer when your time is up. I would like to take 30 seconds. This man does not want me to. This uh, is the problem. So Supervisor Kim has a number of Supervisor Kim has a number of speakers that she will facilitate. We will be calling up all the speaker so, cards. Sir, be patient, please. Be patient, okay. so, so we, we will be calling up members call of the public. As long as it is based on fear and enforcement. That is what the police do. That is why it never works. Please respect everybody else. Yeah, respect me. Respect Please me. Respect, respect me. The process. Supervisor Kim will call the, the list. Thank you. That is so bullshit. Process over content never, ever, ever makes sense. You guys are so enlightened. I will be speaking to members Goodbye. of the public. And if you would like to ask a speaker to let you speak before you, that is totally welcome. We know that some members of the public have to leave before others. Um, and so, and also if you are senior and disabled and you would like to speak ahead of your time, please feel free to line up. Um, so I'll call the first 10 names on our list. Again, you don't have to go in the order that I call you in. I have um, Jackie Jenks, Darcel Jackson, Kathy Trajari, Paulette Gomez, Felicia Houston, Ken Reggio, Devra Elderman. Margie English, Amy Kaufman, and Emmanuel Richardson, and then I will call up the next list. I'm going to get going because I only got two minutes. My name is Darcel Jackson. I live at the uh, <clears throat> next door. I'm HIV positive. I got hypertension and a whole bunch of other things that you put up there. And one of the problems is when I first started the shelter system, they sent me to a uh, um, over there on Dolores on Valente. 
and they uh, gave me a bed, and somebody stole my pills, my HIV medicine. I had, it took me two weeks to get some more. Now, I went to see my worker at GA, and after my 90-day bed is up, I go back to GA, and then they send me to another shelter, which could possibly be one without a lock, and somebody can steal my meds again. The other problem I have is I'm getting sicker just by being in the shelter system. My, my, uh, my uh, viral load is going up and stuff because I can't manage my care. I came, when I first came in, I did everything the way they asked me to do. I came in, I did that one night a day stuff. I went and then finally got a 90-day bed. I signed up for a case manager two months ago. I ain't heard nothing. And I sleep in the same bed every night in the same shelter where the case manager is supposed to come. These people, you, you're asking the wrong people questions. You should talk to the people that are in the shelter. And I commend you for spending the night risking getting bed bugs or something like that. And, and having six people in, in the shelter system is really not good because they come there. To, I, I go to the bathroom and there's bandages, bloody bandages on the floor. Feces where people can't change themselves. I live in a shelter and there's three nurses that live in the shelter because they have no place else to go. You have resources that are right there, just reach out to those people. I know if you ever came to the shelter, when you went there, you seen them in their little nursing outfits and they live in the shelter. Uh, the fire department, I could tell you exactly how many times they come. They come six times a night. Six times a night. That's before I go to bed because I go to bed at night. Um, to, to the members of the audience, I'll just say we have a rule in the Board of Supervisors. We, tr we ask people to try to um, not give vocal comments, but I think it's okay to show support for people with a, um, a non-vocal way, but a visual way. And I would just ask people to, to do that in, in favor of efficiency of this meeting. But thank you for following that. If you don't mind speaking into the happy mic. Every, happy Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. Thanks. And just so members of the public are aware, the reason why we have you on the mic is because there are members of the public that are watching this at home on TV or online, and they can't hear you speak if you're not in the mic. Okay. Um, I have to read this right quick from some paper because I'm very nervous. But um, I, am, I am almost 70 years old. I'm homeless, I'm disabled, and I'm living in a shelter. And even though I work each and every day, and I work for IHSS for over 30 years taking care of disabled seniors, and I can't get any help anywhere. I put in so many applications. I signed for so many lotteries. And I'm just tired. All I want to do is just rent. I don't care about 50% or 30%. I work every day. I can pay my own rent. I'm just an older woman looking for somewhere to live because I'm disabled. My legs hurt so bad. Half the time, I can't hardly get up even go to work. But I continue doing this for over 30 years. This is not only for me. It's for other disabled and older men and women also. Please, somebody help us. We just want somewhere to stay with a kitchen and a bathroom so we can live like human beings the way we were raised to. Thank you, and God bless all of you.
Hi. Um, yesterday at the shelter, uh, a person, a will from the coalition of homelessness came and said that uh, there may be um, a problem about uh, the ECS shelters being 24 hours. They might not be 24 hours anymore. So I just want to say that we need the ECS shelters to be to stay 24 hours because it is very exhausting to be homeless. There's also difficulty finding a rest uh, a restroom when the shelter is closed. Also, it is very common to get sick uh, when you stay in the shelter because there's a lot of germs flying around. And when you have bronchitis and need bed rest, you really need a 24-hour shelter because there's nowhere to lie down otherwise. And there's also a lot of older seniors, shelter clients, that need a place to rest during the day. Thank you. Good afternoon, Supervisors. I'm Kathy Tujari. I'm ECS Director of Shelters, and I manage uh, 534 single adult uh, beds, a sanctuary next door shelter, and an, and an additional 60 to 100 mats for the interfaith winter season. I appreciate the focus today on the health needs of our shelter residents and really, really welcome the dialogue and especially the problem solving that I hope that will come out of this process. We know that our fellow San Franciscans who find themselves homeless are aging and are coming to us with acute and chronic health conditions. Those are, as Kate Shooten, who's wonderful and very, very supportive, has trained us with acute and chronic, and I think the solutions need to be for both of those issues. Our city shelters were never designed to take care of people that are sometimes so sick that they can't self-care. And what we've seen for the last two and a half years is an increase in people that are sent to shelter even though we absolutely do not have the capacity or the resources to serve them. We appreciate the Department of Public Health's response to this crisis, and it is a crisis, and it's going to become an increasing crisis, and by embedding two nurses in the single adult shelter system. This will give us the needed opportunity to assess the medical needs of the people we serve, uh, but nurses in shelter is only the beginning of responding to the impending crisis that is coming as our homeless age. And again, um, assessments I think are very, very important. I think just at this hearing alone, we hear there's a lot of confusion as far as the numbers of folks that are coming to us that have trouble self-care. I'll end by saying that the shelters do not have the staff capacity to deal with folks that are coming to us that are so sick. We have 10 behavioral health specialists for approximately 1,200 beds in the city. That is absolutely not enough. We have two information and resource specialists, one at Sanctuary and one at Next Door. And again, I resonate what Kate Shute is saying. The folks that are coming to us have complex needs and complex solutions. And a lot of work goes into liaisoning and collaborating with uh, other agencies on behalf of that person. Thank you. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Ken Reggio, Episcopal Community Services, and I'm joined by Margie English of uh, St. Vincent de Paul Society and by Deborah Edelman of Hamilton Family Services. Uh, we appreciate very much the focus on health today, uh, and we welcome the resources that will be brought. Kathy just talked to the need. It's huge, and we can't expect to do in shelter without the added resources. I also want to talk today, we want to talk today about the health of uh, our organizations themselves that are providing the services of large shelters. Tonight, our organizations will serve as we do every day and night more than 1,000 
these three organizations, more than 1,000 homeless men, women, and children in Hamilton and MSC South at the sanctuary unit next door. Uh, we'll provide the safety net services of food and shelter. We'll try to help people on their uh, road to get out of shelter as well, but without the resources, that's difficult. Uh, we help people get through the difficult circumstances uh, as a respite from the streets. And also, as we do every day and night, we'll provide these services with resources that are insufficient to pay the bills. For that reason, together, our three organizations are requesting that the city grant HSA a 414,000, and we'll give you paperwork with these figures, emergency supplemental allocation in the current fiscal year in order to cover unfunded operational expenses of San Francisco's four largest shelters. Whoa. Uh, I'll talk very quickly. We'll, uh, this 144, we're asking also to have combined, uh, excuse me, the 414, we're asking to combine also with the 144 that we received in a one-time allocation this year from uh, uh, Human Services Agency. Uh, I want to say that we believe in housing first, but as long as we need shelter in this city, it's got to be funded. We believe it's a public responsibility, and we believe we can't do it by ourselves. Uh, we put... Uh, over the years, millions of dollars into support of shelter and related activity, and we'll continue to do that. We're doing it this year, but this year we have 400-something thousand, 414, uh, after our fundraising of more than a half million dollars where we fall short. And uh, for us, that's bleeding red ink, and we can't do that year after year. And I think that's my message, and I'd like to turn it to Margie English for the next part of our request, please. Hello, Supervisors. Margie English, Executive Director of St. Vincent de Paul Society. Uh, thank you for your uh, attention to the substantive comments made today. We really appreciate it. Um, St. Vincent de Paul Society, been here since 1860, serving vulnerable people, particularly needs of domestic violence survivors and homeless adults since the early 80s. Thank you for the last two years' prior shelter funding requests this additional funding allowed for much-needed additional resources. However, as Ken mentioned, the funding did not address the continuous rising cost of doing business. Uh, the three shelters speaking here today are experiencing increased guest needs, some of which described today, and greater service utilization, while still being flat-funded in our contracts. And where do we go to fill this gap? We do go to outside funding. We do our jobs significantly in our fundraising capacity as well. But current philanthropic tendencies and trends focus on outcomes. Those are easily addressed by housing and employment services, but it's a much more difficult case to make for safety net services of shelter and food for homeless people. As, uh, as Ken well mentioned, there's a, a thousand people a night being served by our our organizations, and by HSA contract, we provide sleeping facilities, meal support services, also by mission and contract, peer support, community building, team building, for both participants and staff. But we do this at a substantially in, in, inadequate funding, um, leaving us with unfunded balances, and we hope you'll consider our request for supplemental funding. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. Thank you, Margie, and good afternoon, Supervisors. I'm Deborah Edelman. I'm the Deputy Director of Hamilton Family Center. Let me reiterate to you our appreciation for today's hearing. Our experience at Hamilton corroborates the earlier emphasis on the health challenges of our shelter residents, and we are so grateful for your consideration of solutions. 
At the same time, we're deeply concerned for the financial health of our organizations. We do important and good work every day, and we do it because it's in our DNA. But we also have to pay for it. Absent funding of today's request, our organizations will bleed more than $400,000 in red ink this year alone. That's FY1415. That's net of our fundraising. It's a loss following other years of deficit that we can't sustain. So with ECS and St. Vincent de Paul Society, I urge you to fund the supplemental request. At the same time, it's important to note that this is an interim request. It's a Band-Aid that will stop the bleeding, but it is not a cure. Funding the supplementary proposal and HSA's disbursement of funds pursuant to board action will allow ECS, Hamilton, and SVDP continued operation of our shelters this year without running deficits for which we have little reserve and without cutting further shelter funding. As you consider funding this emergency request, we ask that you also ensure that the city work with our organizations and the broader community to fund shelter for homeless families and individuals in San Francisco adequately and into the future. I also want to express my strong support for other areas of supplemental requests that will be coming up today from the Coalition on Homelessness. In particular, a request to improve services at First Friendship Shelter for Families and the reservation system for emergency shelter for families. There are too many children that I hear of day to day that are being pulled out of school in order to, to get in line at First Friendship to get a shelter bed. We should not have to to take children out of school and, and actually, sorry, I'm very emotional about this because I see many children every day who are being taken out of school in order to get a shelter bed. And that is something that we do not need to have. We can work together to improve the system. Thank you. Thank you. I also have all of this in writing and letters to you. Who should I? The clerk will um, take that and hand that, distribute that to um, committee members. Um, at this time, I'm going to call up 10 more names. Even if I've called up your name, you'll be able to speak first. Um, but just to get people prepared, um, Sandra Sias, Leticia Flores, Rhonda Black, Edmund Juicy, Lisa Marie Alatore, Chris Herring, Kelly Cutler, Dilara Yar uh, Yarboro, um, Kathy Wolf, and Jenny Friedenbach. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Paulette Gomez. I live at, at a woman's place, which is a 13th admission, which my understanding is the only 24-7 women's shelter in San Francisco. And as a result of that, very few residents who live there ever, ever get a good night's sleep. Uh, very few people who live there um, are in good health. Uh, very few people who live there are happy campers. I once had a, a little group of people I was talking to, and I go, you have to understand what a homeless shelter really is. It's an orphanage for adults. You have to understand where you are, who you are. Are you one of the good guys or one of the bad guys? If you're one of the good guys, you stand up for yourself. You make your, your opinion be known. You speak your mind, and you don't be afraid. No matter who, who comes down on you, who harasses you, who says you're wrong, always speak your mind because somewhere someone will listen. It may be one person, but that one person may be able to change everything. Um, 
I found it would be really interesting. A couple weeks ago, we had a, a staff meeting, a mandatory staff meeting, and they wanted to discuss workshops. And I went, oh, cool. But the workshops were like, what do you want to see us do? Should we do art? Should we have a rap group? Should we do meditation? And uh, one of the management people was leading the meeting, and I said, how much input do you have into the budget? And, and she goes, a little, why? And I go, I think it's great that you're thinking about our mental health, but what about our physical health? I've been to the emergency room three times in two weeks, once for food poisoning and twice for pneumonia. It'd be nice if we had food. It'd be nice if we had heat. And everybody went, well, yeah, that's a really good idea. But nobody thought to open their mouth and say something about it. A shelter is not not a place where people think to go for vacation. It's the place of last resort. I think we need, it's about time we make them our first priority. Thank you, Ms. Gomez. Thank you. Good afternoon, supervisors. Um, we were going to do a quick presentation, but I think for the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and just summarize it with um, my colleague here, Chris. And so in your packets that got sent out, that, that got handed out to you from the clerks is five slides from a presentation on restorative justice. So my name is Lisa Marie Alatori. I'm the human rights coordinator and organizer at the Coalition on Homelessness. And we have been working along with um, the shelters, shelter providers, the city, um, to think about some proactive solutions to what we know are real problems that are happening in the shelters. We understand that the shelters are dealing with really difficult to, to um, address situations that happen every day. Um, and so we really want to introduce and propose the concept of restorative practices in our shelters as an alternative to the current system, which we see as is not effective to responding to the continued harm and, and violence and um, incidences of wrongdoing that are happening. Um, so d just to really quickly overview um, what what restorative practices are. Restorative practices come from um, restorative justice, which is a res an, an alternative to the current criminal justice and legal system that we have, that instead of um, prioritizing punitivity and punishment as a response to when a law has been broken, instead we look at addressing not only the situation that happened to the person who was involved in the incident, but also the people who were impacted by it, the community, the bystanders, and or people who were directly harmed. Um, and by doing that, we are able to actually move towards accountability and towards the folks who are participating in you know, bad behavior or rule breaking to allow them to make amends and remain in the community. Because the other thing that we know is that when people are kicked out of the shelters, it could be a death sentence. It's sending them to the streets where they do not have the supports that they need. In addition, by just pushing people out of the shelter system as opposed to really addressing the needs that they have, we are not actually healing the problems that we're seeing. We're just relegating them to another service provider or we're relegating them to the streets. Restorative practices would allow us to keep people in the community and actually address the behaviors, the patterns, and the problems. Ms. Alatori, can I just say that we were expecting to have you present yeah. with the department heads and department reps, so I'd just like to ask colleagues, is there any objection to allowing Ms. Alatori to finish the slides? And thank you for providing the slides yeah. as well. Do you want me to bring it up so the community can see it? Yes. Is this working? Okay, great. So the basics of restorative practices would allow um, our shelter system to move away from the punitive and punishment-based responses um, towards 
investing in healing, health, and transformation for all parties that are involved and impacted. Um, so it moves us away from a one-size-fits-all model and towards processes that are flexible, creative, and can respond to the specific needs um, of the culture of the space, the incident, the people involved. Um, I think the other piece that we know is that all of our shelters, because our providers are so diverse, our shelter cultures are very diverse, restorative practices would be specific to the shelters for them to decide as a, as a, as a provider what the culture is that they want to create. Um, and then the, the last thing, the last sort of basic of restorative practices is that it centers the experiences of all people that were involved. Um, so not just the person who caused the harm, but staff, bystanders, and the people who were directly impacted. And if it's a large incident, then you would want to bring in the entire community. Um, and that's the other piece, is that we really want to be thinking about these, the shelters, not just as warehouses or holding spaces, but as communities. Temporary though they might be, they are communities, and it is a community space for people. And often, I mean, something that's important to remember is that homelessness is a very isolating experience. Most people are alone all day. Um, when they come to the shelters, when they come to our drop-in centers, sometimes it's the first First time they're having social interaction, which is really critical to people healing trauma, abuse, and suffering, is to be able to feel connected. Um, so keeping people into the community while they are healing is something that we're really invested in. Um, we looked, as the Coalition on Homelessness, we looked at a number of models um, around, the, around the world, um, also looking locally. We have a number of restorative practice uh, approaches that are happening here locally. Larkin, for example, is one of our, is our youth shelter that's currently using it. Um, Hospitality House, um, which is another one of our adult shelters, has also implemented some, some restorative practices and circles. And... So those are some local examples we have. We wanted to bring in some international examples that we thought were really compelling and useful for us to think about as a city. Um, the first one is a UK-based homeless service organization called Hull Harp, located in Hull. Um, the city of Hull, which has adopted restorative justice as an entire city. And so the actual transition from their homeless services to restorative practices was, was a part of an overall transformation within their city. Um, and I wanted to share this quote that is, that they provided directly, um, as, as a, a very powerful testament to what restorative practices has been for this organization. They said, while we offered support and services to a high standard, we were not addressing the behaviors and dynamics of a group of people who often created conflict, were extremely socially disengaged and excluded in a positive way. We were punitive, enforced punishment, excluded individuals from services, a culture that used power as a way of managing individuals. And this is something that we're afraid that we're moving towards in San Francisco, that right now, because of lack of resources, because of the increasing crises of homelessness, because of the increasing aging and, and medical needs, instead of actually investing in healing and transformation, we are prioritizing controlling people and managing people with power. Um, the whole HARP model had a framework that included three components, proactive work, so that's preventative work, mainly community-based organizing, restorative circles that were happening on a regular basis so that not just when a problem started, but they were actually creating that sense of community and problem solving before issues arose. They have um, a reactive work component, so when incidences do arise and problems do happen, there's a team of people ready to respond and a process that includes everyone involved. And then the last piece is reintegration, which is really a last case scenario. When someone is asked to leave the space, it is not without a reintegration plan. So they are never just kicked out with no no hope of ever coming back or receiving services, but instead a very active reintegration plan. 
The second case study that we wanted to offer is a Toronto-based drop-in center um, that caters to the needs of drug users and street-based folks in their Kensington Market downtown area. Um, and this, this model was particularly interesting to us because they m utilize a peer-based model. So they have a, about 15 folks who utilize their drop-in center on a frequent basis, trained as a peer team to be able to offer conflict mediation, de-escalation in their drop-in center, and then they offer facilitation of community meetings and trainings on related and relevant topics. These, this peer team was, um, is paid. They received stipends for their work, and they also received 12 hours of supportive training um, and, and they had a staff person who was paid and assigned to, to, to work with them. Um, and so even though it's a different, you know, it's a drop-in center, we're not talking about our drop-in centers, the peer-based model was really interesting to us because we have so many highly skilled people currently staying in our shelters, and we really feel that those folks would be best, um, that, their, that their skills would be yes, best utilized in, a, in a, uh, a way like this as opposed to... Um, just expecting that the staff of the, of the shelters are going to be able to pick up this work all on their own without additional resources. Um, and so the last piece that I just wanted to put out there was some ideas that we have for San Francisco moving forward. We would like to propose a pilot program be implemented here in San Francisco. Um, and so we are uh, asking for $75,000 to be allocated to at least one shelter to be able to pilot this. We would like to propose that it be a peer-based model that includes training, stipends, and a staff person. Um, we think that there should be program development and training with all staff at the pilot shelter and be open to other shelters as well. Um, and then we have a number of different ideas in terms of what ongoing support and evaluation could look like, including a community-based stakeholder group, advisory group that would be supporting it. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we're really excited about this idea. We're really excited about this hearing and that we've been given the opportunity to talk about this, and we are really looking forward to working with you all and realizing some new ways forward. Thank you. Hi, my name's Chris Herring. I'm also part of the Human Rights Working Group at the Coalition on Homelessness, who's been doing uh, some research and uh, actions around the restorative practices. And um, just to highlight uh, some things that have come out of this so far, we had a meeting with the um, with uh, some of the shelter directors and some of the frontline staff on this and presented the, uh, with this. Um, and they were all very excited. And just to tie t to some of the other uh, proposals we've heard along with this um, uh, um, supplemental for the pilot program was the first reaction from the staff was, this all sounds great, this is amazing, but we don't even have the resources now to begin doing this. So I just want to encourage that, you know, this pilot program can go forward, but we do need the supplemental so that this can actually be staffed in these places and the training can get down the line. I also want to stress the connection between these restorative practices and the broader health issues we're facing with those uh, facing uh, mental health issues or also physical disabilities. Um, as doing outreach and being around the shelters with the coalition, I've seen um, elderly sick people being kicked out by frontline staff for not being able to get to a toilet in time for throwing up. Um, I've seen uh, mentally, people with mental health issues uh, being kicked out for an evening because they were confused of which bed they were at. And it was dealt with in a very punitive, reactive way by the staff, understandably because they don't have the time to take to look into the person's issue. This pilot program would allow us to uh, you know, have somebody on the site to go through this restorative practice and handle you know, these tough, 
cases of those with physical disabilities, mental health issues, who um, are currently being dealt with in very reactive, more punitive ways. So I think that this pilot program also ties into a lot of the issues we've been hearing um, today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kelly Cutler. I am a volunteer with the Coalition on Homelessness. And um, I, they actually covered quite a bit, I was going to say. But um, I was uh, uh, part of the SAW process, and I was interning for Bevan at the time, who's rad, by the way. Um, and it was, uh, and two of the things that came out of the, the second SAW process were um, about the nurses at uh, shelters, uh, which we now have funding for, but they're not in there yet and restorative practices. And um, so for restorative practices, I can speak from my own experience. I worked at Larkin Street Youth Services a while ago before they adopted it. And I was, uh, I was at a drop-in site up on hate. And it made it so much easier for the staff. As a staff member, it made my job so much easier because it created a culture that, um, that there was a lot of respect and people just, um, kind of handled things, you know, on their own. It was so, so f from the staff perspective, it was a lot easier and um, made it very pleasant to go to work. Um, the other thing was with, uh, with people being discharged out of shelters, uh, we did a, uh, we had an action uh, a little while ago that was a, a sleep-in overnight at Powell. And there was this woman there that, um, she was a senior, and she had her walker, and she was telling me about how she was kicked out of the shelter for being incontinent. And then I'm, and as we're there all night, I'm thinking about how, uh, and how I see as well that, that she's not only losing uh, shelter, uh, but also she's on the street, and there's like the no-sit-lie, where, you know, the, uh, the criminalization of homelessness is impacting the very, um, very vulnerable population. And so I think as a community, it's our responsibility to step up and take care of them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dilara Yarbrough. I'm a researcher and volunteer at the Coalition on Homelessness and the St. James Infirmary. Um, and I'd just like to echo the importance of restorative practices for making our shelters safe and equitable um, providers for everyone, um, in particular people with disabilities and transgender women, um, who we haven't talked about enough here today, are two groups experiencing disproportionate violence in the shelters. And what we see is not only that staff don't support these people to prevent violence, but also that members of these already vulnerable groups are being denied services at disproportionately high rates. Um, so shelter staff who don't have training or expertise to make legal or medical decisions um, about accommodations, for example, or about um, medically necessary trans healthcare are instead kind of relying on these rules and kicking people out of the shelters. So I'd really like to urge everyone to um, consider the needs of these groups and also to um, push for data on 
um, the race, gender, disability status of people who are being denied services. Thanks. Hi, my name is Nicholas Kimura. I'm a shelter client advocate at the Eviction Defense Collaborative. I came here initially for the rules. However, I'd like to provide a snapshot. Um, I do support the uh, supplemental 100% for the adult single shelter system. Um, and I'm going to speak a little bit about the family shelter system for a second. Um, right now, it's about 140 families waiting on connecting point waiting list uh, for shelter. This is for a temporary shelter stay. Um, in January alone, 80, about 84 new families joined the waiting list. Um, and in that time, this is, I think it should be noted that since 2004, there, in 2014, excuse me, there were 179 families on the list. Right now we have 140. So a year ago, there's about a difference of 30 families. Um, we know this is an undercount. San Francisco School District has about 2,300 family, uh, children that they count, not including children under five and, you know, toddlers. Um, I think it's important to note this because in the family shelter system, there's about 70 spaces for families, uh, 70, spaces for long-term rooms. In the emergency shelter system, there's probably about another like uh, space for maybe, I mean, there's 284 units total in the entire system. Units means a bed. So there's 284 beds in the entire system. Um, what I'm getting at is my point is that uh, the emergency, that the shelters are full. There is an obviously long waiting list. The emergency shelters are averaging um, First Friendship, which is a, 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 an emergency shelter, averages about 12 families per night in January. Um, and then Hamilton as well has their own uh, emergency center beds. These beds are reserved by calling. However, at First Friendship, uh, it's a first come first show uh, way that they do it. So families have to show up at 3 p.m. They're there and they cannot leave until the morning. Um, I think this is important to know because as we're talking about health and hygiene of the facilities, um, First Friendship does not contain uh, showers for these children. So in order to get into First Friendship, you have to show up at 3, you have to stay there, and then in the, in the morning you have to leave about 6, 7 o'clock. They actually have to go downtown. First Friendship is in the Western Edition. They have to go downtown to Soma to get a shower for the children. So I, this is why I support the supplemental. I think that there's lots of families utilizing the emergency shelter, and um, there needs to be some sort of way for these kids to be clean without these families running around from place to place. Thank you. Hi, good afternoon. Jennifer Friedenbach, Director of the Coalition on Homelessness. I want to thank you for having this hearing and thank you for the time. Um, I want to point out that at the time of homelessness, poor people who are housed and poor people in, who are homeless are virtually the same. There's no higher levels of mental illness, of unemployment, of health problems between those two populations. But as people are homeless, for longer and longer, their health deteriorates, their mental health deteriorates. They develop those addictive disorders. Um, we have in our last homeless count, two-thirds of the homeless population identified as being disabled. That shot up at every count. A homeless person can expect their life expectancy to be cut by a full 20 years. 20 years they lose. Homelessness itself is an independent health risk factor in a whole number of diseases, from the contraction of HIV-AIDS to tuberculosis. Human beings are not meant to live outside. For a portion of the population, and I say a portion because we only have one shelter bed for every five and a half homeless people, uh, they rely on shelter to survive. And the framework of our homeless policy in San Francisco has been to focus on housing and not shelter, which we agree with 100%. But we also need to ensure that our shelters are a launching pad out of homelessness. 
What we've seen over time is these increases level of acuity of shelter residents and decreasing level of health. Our emergency system is not set up to serve these vast needs, and publicly funded shelters have been struggling to serve the population. We have made a number of gains. We've made those gains through homeless people themselves, but we're not there yet. We have a long way to go to bringing homeless people together to fight for these solutions. Um, we have compiled a number of recommendations that you have in front of you, um, both short-term and long-term, um, short emergent needs around a supplemental uh, that needs to happen immediately, um, including shoring up First Friendship Shelter to ensure that our children have a safe place to sleep at night that has a shower, that they don't need to miss school to go to, um, and a number of other items you have before you. Thank you. So, so colleagues, I'll, I'll just say also that I, I, my hope was that these would have been presentations with the department heads, and can we give Ms. Friedenbach a few more minutes to, or a, another minute to um, continue the, the um, presentation? Without objection, thank you. So one of the issues around First Friendship, and I think Nick laid it out, is that uh, families are trying to get there at 3 o'clock so they ensure they get a bed and their kids are missing school. The other night we um, we were there, and um, the staff were very upset, and, and the family was very upset. A parent who was here earlier, his son Emmanuel wanted to speak, but they had to leave to pick up another child and make sure they got into the shelter. And uh, he wet his bed and um, had no change of clothes, no place to shower, and his father forced him to go to school. He had to force him to go to school um, with soiled clothing. There was no change of clothes, um, and there was no shower. And this is what we're doing to our families. Um, we have a situation where they're traveling um, really long distances to try to get access to a shower. And these are mats on a floor. Uh, so, you know, as parents, it, you know, really want to try to keep their kids clean. Um, they're missing school, and they have to make a choice. Many families do. They make a choice between showering or getting to school on time. At the end of the day, the children are not able to um, go to parks. They're not able to engage in enrichment activities. Um, we've had teens talk about how they had to quit their volleyball team um, in high school in order to do this. This is what we're having our families do. Um, the whole family um, has to be there at check-in time. Um, there are several different um, stages to try to get emergency shelter. Um, and so we have a very simple solution. Um, and we just we would like to change um, and include in a supplemental of a call-in number for families so that they can call at a certain time. They can reserve a bed. If Hamilton is full, they can get a, uh, they won't have a bed, but a mat on the floor at First Friendship. First Friendship is full, a mat on the floor at Providence. Very simple solution. And then there can be a later curfew time for them to go to. Supervisor Kim. Um, thank you. Actually, I, I forgot to ask you this uh, when reading the supplemental uh, request. Um, I didn't see anything in the request that included um, support for first friendship um, and kind of what you just described as a potential solution for our families on the homeless list and also with shower. Yeah, access. so we um, we estimated that it would be about $40,000 to have some kind of call in line, probably less than that, but at the most $40,000. Um, and then the shower cost at this point is $240,000. Um, and there's additional needs at First Friendship that we, we should really look at trying to invest in in next year's budget. But those are sort of the emergency needs that we saw is just like this first stage um, to try to get implemented. It's number four in the supplemental. Number four? Uh-huh, in the narrative. 
In the supplemental? Oh no, in the not in the the other um, in the other packet that you have has a narrative supplemental with four items. Oh, so the first friendship. So there's two supplemental requests from the community. Um, so one supplemental request with four items. So one of them is um, the additional funding at first friendship for showers and a call in line. The second one is. Um, the shoring up the emergency shelters, the three largest shelters at ESC, uh, Episcopal Community Services, Hamilton and St. Vincent de Paul. Um, the third is um, an, a pilot project for restorative practices in our shelter. And the fourth is subsidies um, so that we can quickly move people into housing um, out of homelessness with um, available nonprofit housing units that they volunteered to turn over to homeless people if they get a subsidy. So, so I'm there's really two. sorry, I don't have the three others. I only have this one. Oh, okay. There's I, the... I, I might have misplaced it. Yeah. It's, I'm um, we'll get you a copy of it. conversation, but mm -hmm. I, I, that's why I was a little Yeah, confused. so there's a packet that has the um, slideshows that um, Lisa Marie presented. And in that packet, oh, um, with the cover letter from the Coalition on Homelessness, is a supplemental narrative that has the four items contained in it. Um, and those are the short-term solutions. And then long-term, you know, some of the stuff we talked about, we need to expand our respite um, in uh, medical respite in our shelter system. Secondly, um, Supervisor Kim, who um, I want to thank for working so hard on this issue and has, has been doing stellar work as always. Um, the idea came around using the Affordable Care Act as leverage to get private hospitals to invest in our shelters so we can bring up uh, medical staffing inside shelters, um, which I think is a really um, amazing idea that Department of Public Health and Barbara Garcia brought forward. Um, and we also have, um, you know, uh, ongoing issues with the shelters around um, low wages and low funding um, that need to be addressed. And the last two items is, of course, we need to boost up our investment in housing. I just want to briefly say during the last 10 years, about 40% of our affordable housing, if you combine redevelopment and um, Mayor's Office on Housing, um, has gone towards homeless people. And in the pipeline for the next five years, only 20% towards homeless people. So we need to really um, put some subsidies in there. And the housing is already paid for. It's just a subsidy to bring the rent down. Um, and homeless households would be able to move in and invest in prevention to keep people from becoming homeless. Thank you. Oh, Supervisor Campos. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Friedenbach. Just a quick question for you. Um, going back to the issue of kids uh, missing school, so how does that, so if, if, you're, if you're requesting a space, if you're a family, everyone has to be present? Yeah, so the, the process for the families is at 11 a.m., they call into Hamilton Emergency Shelter. And uh, they have a small number of beds that fill very quickly. And for large families, it's, it's impossible to get in because um, they, you know, it's just such a small 21 beds, I believe. Um, so those are usually full. So then at 3 o'clock, First Friendship opens up in the Western Edition. And families go um, there. Um, First Friendship often fills up. So families, um, a number of families, about a handful of families every month are, are turned away from shelter. So they try to get there. That opens up at 3. It's first come, first serve. The whole family needs to be there for a reservation. Um, once they fill up at First Friendship, um, later in the evening, um, families wait, and then they get a transportation over to the Bayview to the Providence Shelter, which has um, kind of a foyer above the gymnasium where women and women with children are allowed to speak when the other um, sleep when the other family's shelter is full. And if a family shows up uh, but says, you know, my kid is at school right now, that, that won't be sufficient? 
No, the whole, the policy is the whole family needs to be present in order to check in. Okay. And so, it, yeah. It, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ms. Friedenbach. I, I just have to say I'm frustrated with that situation because we never asked First Friendship to do that. That's not, you know, a component of our grant to them. I mean, they could change that rule today. There's nothing here at the board that we have to do to change that. They shouldn't have to require every member of the family to come at 3 o'clock um, and to stay there all day. I, I just think that that's inhumane. Um, and certainly for our young people that are in our shelters, I, I hope that changes without us having to take an action here at the city level. Um, I, oh, sorry, Supervisor Campos. Who, who exactly is the one that decides whether or not that changes? My, oh, my, Ms. Crum maybe can... Um, sure, I'll, I'll speak to that. Um, it's, so there's some history um, to that rule because our emergency shelters fill up really fast. Uh, when we expand, we were initially at Bethel AME Church and then we moved over to First Friendship. Uh, and because there was a rise in the number of homeless families seeking shelter, um, the history that Providence, which is the organization that manages um, First Friendship and the Providence um, um, shelter, the history is that families would come in, they would leave, and then not come back, which means that Providence was holding a shelter bed for three, four, five individuals in the house, and then they wouldn't come back and they turned someone away. So the discussion um, they had with us was making it a rule that all family members must come at the same time in order to secure a room, uh, a space. So this conversation once again um, came up because we got a letter from the coalition and since December we have had meetings with the other shelter providers to talk about a call in for Providence and to talk about relaxing the rules around all family members showing up. Me. So it's not something that we're not addressing. It takes time, you know, to implement a rule, bring it to the community so they know what the changes are going to be. And I appreciate that, but I have to say, having, you know, as a former general counsel of the school district, uh, I am very upset that, that, I mean, the law requires that kids, you know, below a certain age have to be in school. And so uh, I, I think that it just doesn't make sense for us to have a situation that essentially is forcing a family to break the law. Okay. I, I hear what you're saying, and um, so I, I appreciate the concern. So I think if there's a way that that we can address that, so that so that we do address the concern of families not so people not showing up, but I, I just think that uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that if you're the 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 California Department of Education and know that uh, the San Francisco you know, Human Services Agency is requiring families to take their kids out of the school system. I mean, you could be cited for that. Right, and I, I can't speak to that issue that we are requiring them to take um, the kids out of school. I think, I, I don't think it's anything written or I don't think it, or our shelter provider has told a family that you must take the kids out. 
But if if an if an agent of the city is basically giving families a choice between being on the street or taking the kid out of the school system, it's is essentially the same, you know. And so, so I I actually think that in terms of liability, uh, I think this is something that uh, I think we need to do not only because it's the right thing, humane thing to do, but I think that there are legal concerns here. Uh, so I hope we address this right as soon point as possible. well taken, and, and I'll take it back, and we'll Thank address you. it with with the provider. Thank you. Thank you. I know that we have some members of public that have to pick up their kids, and also we have some members that are disabled. So if we can just let them uh, come up and speak first, um, why don't we have the next speaker, and then I will, um, and then after Kathy, I'm going to call up more speaker cards. Hi. Can I start? Okay. <laughs> My name is Julia D'Antonio, um, formerly homeless. I work at the Coalition on Homelessness. Um, you can't hear. Okay. Um, every day I have families come in. I have individuals come in asking uh, for housing, asking for the housing list, which barely ever changes anymore. When I was homeless, every month there was constantly new things coming online to apply to. At least if you weren't getting it, there was some like hope of you possibly, potentially could be housed. Um, we don't have that anymore. Um, we need to fix this, and our loss proposal is a really easy way to do this. We're just um, turning over properties. Um, I know we have the money. The city definitely has it for 89 units to get people housed. Um, also, as somebody who lived in a family shelter, I can't imagine living in a shelter without a shower for my kid to shower. Somebody who works 16-hour days, not being able to shower, um, you know, a lot of sickness, germs from the school, stuff like that. So... Thank you. Hello, my, my name is Catherine Wolf, and I am a resident of, I am currently president of a newly elected uh, community resident association in the South of Market. Uh, 20 years ago, I worked full time. Five years ago, I was homeless. But 20 years ago, I was still considered homeless because I have, I'm a single parent and I had children under the age of 18 and we lived in SROs and by school standards, we were homeless. We had endured a lot. Five years ago, I literally became homeless on the street. My daughter was placed in foster care. And so our family's health deteriorated. Then I went through and got to the point where I was with the HOT team. And through the HOT team and the Tom Waddell Clinic, I was able to have case management, money management, therapy, whatever my needs were. But it was a whole person approach. Today, most of it is one, per, one part. Let's just focus on mental health. Let's just focus on healthy, on housing. Nobody works together. And we need to work together as a team. Organizations need to work together as a team in order to address the whole issue. Because if I didn't have the support of the HOT team and I didn't have the support of Tom Waddell Clinic and all of those, I would not be here today. Within two and a half years, I've now got my own place. I'm now president of a community association that is based upon people that is out there trying to make a difference. So we really need to work together as a team. I suffer depression post-traumatic stress, chronic sleep deprivation, chronic arthritis, and chronic asthma. And without having this, and a lot of those shelters are not an ideal place to move forward. There's too many people I've seen from going to St. Anthony's go through the cycle. 
You've got to do something. You've got to change it. Team effort with the agencies, with the departments. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Wolf. And I'm going to call a couple of other speaker cards on five more names. James Tracy, Dwayne Sears, Anak Solrama, um, Janetti Johnson, and Alan Craigie. Good afternoon. I'm Cynthia Parker Henny. I'm the shelter program manager at Hospitality House. Um, Hospitality House wants to say that we support the emergency shelter supplemental. And we also need to have the restorative practices program funded. Last week, we used the restorative practices circle during one of our hearings uh, with Will Daly. And I can tell you that this was a, a way of giving our client dignity in, because he had been DOS'd. And not just throwing him out of the shelter, but providing a way for the residents to talk about how they've been affected by the harm that they felt as a result of the incident this circle also provided a way for the residents to understand not only the client's narrative, but their own narrative, and subsequently moved toward promoting reconciliation and healing. I can tell you that in the next session of our circle, we began to have therapeutic conversations, and the men began to discuss their feelings, authentic feelings that were deep-rooted. There was a sense of resiliency in the circle, and they felt validated because we asked them how they had been affected. And it was a non-hierarchical way of relating. It was the beginning of a dialogue, an internalization of respect, communication, and collaboration as, and a way of being with others. I'm asking you to fund this program because we, we really need this program to foster reconciliation and healing in our community. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Janetta Johnson, and I'm the program director at TGI Justice Project, which is Transgender, Gender Variant, Intersex Justice Project. And I wanted to talk about working with the transgender community that have been accessing services at Nextdoor. And for some reason, it seems like um, we've had a, a large number of transgender uh, people that are being discharged from the next door shelter. And we've also received a lot of reports of um, just mistreatment of transgender people that are currently being housed in there. And I'm also part of the Taja Coalition. So another thing that I wanted to bring to your attention that, you know, based on all the murders that have been happening in throughout California and within the transgender community, we have a lot of fear and anxiety. And I'm concerned about them putting transgender people out on the street, which is a very vulnerable population of people that, um, and um, I just went to a hearing with a person that was at next door shelter, and it really concerned me because the staff that came in for the meeting, their energy, their personality, and everything about them, I don't see how that client even felt like they had a fair opportunity in that hearing. They were outnumbered. There was no other transgender 
person there. Generally, there's no other transgender person there to even the playing field, not to mention the abuse and the trauma that transgender people face from the people living in the shelter. And mostly people in the shelter take lead by the staff. If the staff sort of kind of gives you permission to harass the transgender people. And if, and, if, and if they see the staff is mistreating us, that's the way they treat us because it's clear that there's nobody concerned. And I'm just concerned about, based on the recent murders of transgender people, how do we come up with some type of coalition for equal access, equal representation for transgender people? Also keeping in mind that um, a lot of people are coming uh, transitioning as well, and there's transitioning um, needs that are coming up for transgender women that are transitioning that are not being met. And I want to really encourage you guys to um, come up with some type of coalition or some type of cap to sort of kind of oversee that because in San Francisco, as transgender people, we need to feel safe and we're looking to find safe spaces and we want them to be identified and to be cared for and nurtured because those are things that are important for us is our safety. Well, I want you to see this book here. It's called March. It's about March 3rd, 65. They're going to go back on the bridge. That's when we got the vote. Voting's right. But also in 65, voting rights was approved in, Alab in, our, in Alabama. But also in 68, housing rights was also approved by Johnson. What we're asking... The president, when he be on that bridge March 3rd, we want San Francisco to stand up with the president when they march across that vote on 50 years anniversary of the voting right, because housing right came there too. I don't like the word ho homeless. It's called houseless. And look. The road ahead will be long. Our climb will be steep. We may not get there in one year or even in one term. But America, I have never been more hopeful than I am tonight that we will get there. I promise you, we as a people will get there. See, President Bob, you know, President Bauman, we want you to encourage him. He said at the meeting that he would work with board of supervisors and mayors to do better for our country. It was Ronald Reagan in 66 who closed the Napa Valley Mental Institution. Now, he became president in 80. He cut housing 80 percent. We are suffering from what Ronald Reagan did in the housing. And if we in San Francisco don't stand up and fight for housing right as a human right. There's no such word, such word as homeless, because the Statue of Liberty guarantees you to give me your tide and your hunger. When you come to America, homeless is not a word. It has become a word in the since 87. In San Francisco, we need to know that what's going on here, SROs, I stand in SROs where we have fires all the time. SROs are sometimes considered homeless. You hear that all the time. We're told that every day. You are homeless if you're an SRO. We have different factions of homeless that we all want to be on that program. We want to reform this restoration and shelters and SROs because San Francisco will take care of families and single people. We will be on our way. If you don't do that, then we're going to have these problems. Thank you.
Good afternoon, Supervisors. Will Daly. I'm a shelter client advocate. We represent shelter clients in internal shelter hearings as well as in outside arbitrations. We also work with shelters to resolve client matters and when necessary uh, HSA. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about restorative justice. I'm a crusty old guy. I didn't really believe in it when I heard about it, but I'm a believer now. I've been in a few circles. I've uh, facilitated a couple circles. It really does work. Uh, you know, people are happier, more cooperative and productive, more likely to make positive change when those in authority do things with them as opposed to to them or for them. Uh, I have to say the Ministry of Justice in England believes in this. They've spent a lot of money because they realize in the long run it reduced their cost. Recidivism is down. Uh, 85 to 90 percent of victims feel that this is a good process so that it reduces PTSD for victims and witnesses to incidents. Uh, I assert that uh, restorative justice will decrease the cost for emergency services. If you build a sense of community, people are held, hold each other more accountable and uh, offenders are, are aware of their actions. They learn from their actions how directly they've affected not only the victims but the entire community. So I urge you to support this. Uh, I got to tell you that Larkin is doing it. I was looking at their stats in historic. I looked for 36 months. The last three months, their denials of service overall and their immediate denials of service have been cut in half. Last thing I want to say is it's 2015. The city of San Francisco, one of the wealthiest cities on the face of the planet. This is your legacy. Homeless lives matter. It's your legacy and your colleagues' legacy, what you do. Thank you very much. Sir, let me ask a question. So you mentioned about restorative practices at Larkin Street, and I know the models that Ms. Alatori brought up from the U.K. and from Toronto. But what, what other, besides Larkin Street, are there other um, models in our city from organically from our communities that you can SFU uh, USD uh, employs restorative practices and uh, Larkin uh, does it agency wide those are the two that I'm most familiar with in the city thank you actually I'm from Larkin Street and another entity that uses restorative practices is Oakland Unified School District and those are the main uh, entities locally so we're actually forging the way, and we should make San Francisco a restorative city. Right on. Thank you. Thank you. So good afternoon, dear supervisors. My name is Miguel Carrera. So um, I, have a, I have a couple of things to share with you guys. First thing, I hear over and over human service agency talking about they want to create the new rules. So what it means to create new rules? We want to put in more rules to the families, to the children and the shelters. We want to put in more rules to, to the single homeless people and women uh, and, and, and LGTB people in the shelters. No. We have to change in these behaviors. We need to do something different. We have to create agreement collectively with the voices and the people in the shelters to come together to telling us how we can put in or resolve any kind of issues happening inside in the shelters. We cannot create rules anymore. We need to stop in 
and using these bad words against poor people, against families, against children. It's unacceptable for me personally. And I believe for all my colleagues, my co-workers, uh, who is working for homeless people. So, second thing, I believe my two co-workers, Jennifer Friedenberg and Nick, they was talking about the fair friendship. So, it's not cool to parents, mothers, they had to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and traveling to Oshun Center, a women's place, to bring the kids to take a shower. It's cold in the morning. We have to be a little bit human and understand these situations. So I hear Mr. Jo Joyce Crown to saying, oh, we're working to, to implementing the rules and friendship. I don't want rules over there. I don't want rules in any shelters. I want agreements, and I want to work in together, and I would like to work in together, all you guys, to put in these agreements and working the best for the people homeless. And the best solution for these issues is housing. Housing is the solution. It's not another thing. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Dwayne Sears. Um, I'm with Community Housing Partnership. Uh, I formerly was homeless, and I urge you guys to follow through with this because I know people that are mentally ill and sick that are in these places that are getting shifted out, and, and they really need the help. And without these shelters, I don't think I would have ever made it. So um, please, I urge you, support this. Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is James Tracy. I'm from Community Housing Partnership. I'd like to thank uh, the super Supervisors, especially Supervisor Kim, uh, Joyce Crum and her wonderful team, the Coalition on the Homelessness, for their always awesome organizing, for being able to create this type of dialogue where we actually can take a step back and figure out how we can, how we can go forward from here. I'm getting really sick of showing up here, not because I... I, I do, don't enjoy your wonderful company, but I dream of a day... <laughs> Uh, when we can say that we don't need shelters anymore, we don't need supportive housing because we got rid of poverty and we got rid of inequality and we got rid of structural ra racism when all of this effort, efforts that we've put on actually aggregates towards changing this, this uh, potentially great country we have. But until that time, as long as shelters are necessary, they should have the resources to excel, heal, and be a brief step on the way to permanent housing. Uh, so we applaud the public health uh, dialogue and bringing more resources in to the shelters. Uh, when we receive people from the shelters, when they come into our permanent housing, uh, it makes for a stronger community if people have suffered less trauma on the, on the way. And, of course, uh, restorative justice is, a, is, is an idea whose time has come. I would like to caution us to think that when, about health as not just health as in healing people who are already suffering much, which of course needs to happen, but also preventing harm from happening in the, in, in the first place. We know many people that go through, this, uh, go through the system that are displaced through ec economics, through evictions, through loss of a job, and uh, we don't want, want to construct a, a system where only those who are deemed bureaucratically as most in need can access, can, can access housing and services in the shelters, but a system that makes more for all. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Anaksul Rama. I'm with Community Housing Partnership as well. I'm a community organizer. The first time I actually came up here uh, to the Board of Supervisors and spoke, it was on LGBT issues in the shelters. When I was uh, homeless in the shelter, I was extraordinarily sick and, and was literally dying with HIV. Uh, and I came up here and I spoke and my voice was super raspy. I had been coughing in the shelter uh, the night previously and I remember them telling me that they were going to throw me out because I was being too loud. Uh, so just keep in mind that uh, what Jennifer Friedenbach said, that homelessness cuts life expectancy by 20 years. And I just want to uh, call your attention to uh, the consideration that every person that is, in, that is homeless in our city, that is in our shelter, most likely has a form of PTSD. Uh, homelessness in itself causes a post-traumatic stress disorder, which causes a whole host of uh, other issues uh, for people. One of the things that I, I'm hoping that we can do is to apply new resources and not new barriers for folks that are in our shelters. They already have enough uh, barriers and uh, hoops that they have to overcome. And I think that we can do that by bringing the housed community and the recently housed community together with the shelter community to work on those issues and create additional resources, build that community, which will start helping people in the place that they're at. And one of the ways we can do that is looking at, into community peer partners to begin working on a foundation of stability for shelter clients so what they, when they do move on to, into transitional or supportive housing they already have a foundation for stability thank you um, hi uh, um, hola mi nombre es Efraín uh, no hablo inglés solo español my name is Efraín I don't speak English I only speak Spanish uh, um, tengo dos años de vivir en la calle. I've been living in the streets for the last two years. It is always rough, it is always dangerous. Uh, hace un año estuve en un shelter en Miami. Um, y uh, había muchas reglas uh, que no... No estaban bien. Um, last year I lived in a shelter in Miami and there was a lot of uh, rules that were arbitrary. Uh, yo quería trabajar y el reglamento del shelter me lo impedía o trabajaba o vivía en el shelter. And I wanted to work, however, the, the rules of the shelter uh, uh, forbid me from doing so. I either worked or lived in the shelter. O para el baño también era un horario uh, muy complicado. It's always very difficult to access showers. Oh, también existía mucho racismo y homofobia. There is an awful lot of uh, racism and homophobia in the shelters. Uh, una vez en ese shelter en Miami, uh, estuve a punto de ser estrangulado por una persona homofóbica y racista. Uh, once I was about to be strangled by a homophobic and racist person in the shelter. Uh, y por esa razón decidí mejor ya nunca más uh, volver a un shelter. And that is the reason why I decided to not to ever go back to a shelter again. Uh, me gustaría que existiera un lugar uh, para mí y para todas las personas que están en mi condición uh, que fuera seguro para nosotros. I wish the, um, the places that are safe and secure for all of us existed out there. Uh, que no hubiera racismo, homofobia, donde pudiéramos sentirnos libres como realmente somos. Free of racism and homophobia with the ability to feel free in the way we are.
Oh, y con todo respeto, me gustaría que uh, pusieran un poco de atención en, en ese tipo de, de cosas que nos pasan a nosotros como, como personas gay. And with all due respect, um, I wish you can pay, pay some attention to uh, all the circumstances in which we live, like with the gay community. Es todo, gracias. That's all, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that beautiful statement. I really appreciate that. And um, before our next speaker comes up, I'm going to call out the last of the speaker cards. Um, Trebian Amand, um, Irma Nunez, Christian Williams, and Mark Anthony. And if I have not called your name, um, please feel free um, to come up and speak. How are you all doing today? Um, my name is Trebian Amand. Um, I actually uh, think it was a very beneficial uh, thing uh, coming here today and ha allowing a lot of us, the people who are actually living in these facilities, to, you know, have a say-so, um, as it does play a bigger part, I think, into uh, your decision-making. Um, the overall uh, concept is change, and I feel uh, money, persistence, and time is the, f the, the main factors in this um, situation. Um, mainly, you need to find order in your operations. Um, and that's basically, as a, as a math concept, simplifying the problems uh, to make it easier. Um, if your main problems are accommodating certain types of people, first you gotta group out what type of people need help. The city has money. You know, the city has plenty of money. Um, there are plenty of signs all over the place about this is where you come for dreams can happen, make it happen, you know, change and championship winners and go big and all that kind of stuff. We have it um, because we have that confidence as a city as a whole. Um, I kind of feel like uh, be, be, because you have like these different uh, people that need to be tended to, um, you, the staff can't accommodate it. So increase your staff. You have the money to do it, so make it happen. Um, you have the... the we're putting too much money into high rises and all these other things when we could be, it, it, you guys wouldn't be on this panel today if you didn't want change or something better to happen. So why can't we just set aside the main things that we're developing in the, in the city to pinpoint one of the major aspects of who we are? Shelters are meant to be a flow. It's not, it's not permanent. They're temporary. They should keep going as the life of the city is going. Keep it as an even flow. Make it look good with the city. These people need housing. Okay, they're not. These these shelters aren't meant to camp up in and post up in for years that a lot of these people have been here. But then you have mental health people. You have uh, the elderly. You have transgender people. You have so many different things that play a part in this. And you guys need to just fund the money. You have it. Make it happen. Thanks. Hello, my name is Christian Williams. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak briefly today to the storied assembly. My story is brief. I cycled across country for three and a half months and over 4,000 miles to fight hunger and homelessness in this country. I intended to make San Francisco my new home as the second phase of my jumping off point to this vision quest to pay it forward uh, in any way that I could using my talents of writing, artistry, and music. In five short months, I've come to experience firsthand the colossal undertaking for which I feel somewhat ill-equipped. In all fairness, I've witnessed the tireless efforts and a desire to make a difference by various individuals on both sides of the homeless equation. And I am thankful for those souls of the St. Vincent de Paul and the ECS programs. However, I've come to witness the disparities, the inconsistent plying of services, of general population establishments housing, focuses, housing folks with clearly more need than just an overnight bed 
and one or two meals. <clears throat> I can relate the for instances and minute details of the denial of services and consistencies, the seemingly disincentivized transition and exit plans, safety, security, and quality of life scenarios that fall short of expectations. But I believe this is not the place for that time-sensitive forum. Furthermore, I could quote numbers, percentages, quotas, pie chart successes, and, by, and bar graph failures, but that's old news. I am homeless. I am tired. And as I speak to you today, I am ill. But I am not deterred in continuing my journey to wrestle with the inequalities of our time and make a difference in the life of just one more human being besides myself. I believe that more funding for support services is just one way to deal with the tide of what I've heard termed as the human flotsam in an unprecedented sea of abundance. We don't need hacking rehashing of axioms like if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. We need action by committed, passionate, driven spirits who believe that doing the right thing is more than just some sociopolitical karma. It is the right thing because it is the right thing, period. We need funding for the well-trained, well-informed, and well-paid resources that are required to affect real change. Thank you for your time and consideration. Good afternoon. My name is Mark Anthony. Uh, say welcome. Good afternoon to the staff. I mean to the panel, Jane Kim, for your uh, great efforts. Got something going on here. Listen, um, I was once homeless 14 years ago, and I had an opportunity to give back. Uh, I can tell you some horror stories that happened in the shelters, and that's a different show. Uh, the staff, the staff wasn't formally trained. Uh, Miscellaneous, something. <laughs> oh, it's this one. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Um, the staff wasn't trained. There's a lot of hor horrendous things going on, okay? And basically the staff were enabling a lot of the clients to do some negative things. Um, I want to frame the word solution. You know, there's a lot of positive things that are going on. I wish they were happening when I was once homeless. Um, uh, I like to see someone do some creative, some creative financing to make something positive happen uh, with this health care that we have going on, I mean, the mental health going on with the shelters. I'd like to see more than 60 beds for the city, quote, respite beds. Um, mercy, a lot of my client, my colleagues have said a lot of words for me, but I just want you to think about the right thing to do for the community. You know, we're all part of the human race. And we all deserve a fair chance and to be housed. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Manuel Jenkins. Um, I'm just trying to uh, touch bases with the Board of Supervisors to say thank you for uh, assisting um, the Homeless Coalition and everything. And, um, you know, thinking back to when I was younger, uh, my grandmother was over... Uh, overly influential throughout the community. She's a pillar to the uh, continent of America. Her name is Mary Butler. She left me with a, an abundance of property throughout uh, California and Nevada and everything that has been stolen by certain individuals who started the federal government. And they also uh, put a plague on the streets uh, that I'm not going to go too deep off into, but it's, it's crystal methamphetamine mixed with 
Tasmanian tiger DNA, and it it uh, equals up to HIV and AIDS. This is how it's made, and we did the uh, research on it and everything. Well, short, long story short, my grandmother uh, left me, like I said, an abundance of property and also uh, shares of the homeless uh, shelters and the flower shop right next, across the street to uh, MSC South. And, um, you know, I'm having a hard time claiming this property. And also, uh, you know, I just want to let the board of supervisors know that if you guys can help me, I wouldn't have a problem with uh, assisting a lot of the uh, homeless people, you know, because I am, like, the key to unlock a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of funding that was uh, wrongfully taken and everything throughout the uh, state, Oakland, Richmond, everything, you know, is really under my name, uh, Treasure Island was also, uh, you know, my property. My sister sold it uh, with somebody else and wasn't supposed to. My uh, grandfather's name was Robert Henderson. You know, he's a, a strong part of history itself, you know, and it all falls along the line of the civil government turning into the federal government. You know, I don't want to go too deep off into it. I just want to say thank you, Kim, for, you know, being who you are and, uh, also, I want to ask, did you uh, ever receive the uh, writings that I left on your computer? Yeah, I'm going to leave you some more stuff, okay? And um, I just want to ask you all be safe. If you ever need me, you know where to get in contact with me at. I always do uh, volunteer work there. All right? Thank you. Thank you. Are there any, okay. If there are any other members of public that would like to speak, um, please do come up. Here I am. Yeah, thank you for having the meeting and bringing this to the table. Um, there was other rules of the, there was other rules that had me um, bothered because there was rules about tape recording. I know you have to follow California laws regarding that, but it just seems like they're trying to take away measures that the shelter workers could be, um, that this, they're taking away measures where the homeless would actually document them being abused. So we we're having, I mean, I seriously doubt the problems of the homeless being abused in our shelters has actually gone away. And that needs to be addressed. Um, I also want to think all of the things that people were saying, I feel like the 10 year council on ending homelessness that's run by the local homeless coordinating board those are the people that should be dealing with this. They're, I don't know if they even meet anymore. So the other thing too is, is I would like a continuance so that we can bring this back and then get the information that they say they're getting. And um, I think the other thing is, is I would appreciate if this body took some action. I mean, you're, you're saying that the schools could be cited because of what the shelters are doing. And it sounds like Joyce Crum is only giving you excuses. So, I mean, and that's that's my main problem. Do better to help people. I mean, put some passion or concern to help people live better. Um, you know, give them tools to live their lives better. Instead, all we get is excuses. Um, and I think we need to hear from the hot team because the hot team, it seems like they're laying it down. They're doing it. And... It just seems like they're very important, and we just are not hearing from them. 
I'm also concerned as to how this meeting was posted and did the homeless get any type of um, notice as to whether this was going on. Um, so I think I just have. Uh, Thank you. The tech companies, could I mention the tech companies? Because the tech companies are giving out, they are giving out some monies for this. I just feel like the tech companies could be reminded to invest some money into our shelter systems. Um, and I apologize, your time is up. If you want to just wrap up with your last sentence. Uh, that sentence is probably a long paragraph, but uh, I'm just, You're welcome just looking to over my notes. Submit your comments um, to members of this committee separately. All right. All right. I just, I just, I'd like a continuance so that hopefully we can actually get to solutions. We need more people in the Department of Public Health, Department of Human Services that are really, that are really serious about this. Because I feel like more excuses, more dehumanization coming from the Department of Human Services. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, um, I, I don't see um, any other members of the public um, that would like to speak, so i um, ask our vice chair if we can close public comment. So public comment is closed. Um, want to give time to colleagues if they want to make any closing comments. Uh, no, I just want to thank uh, Supervisor Kim uh, for her ongoing efforts uh, around this very important issue. Uh, I want to thank the, the, the uh, HSA and the Department of Public Health for the presentation. Uh, I know that Ms. Crum, Mr. Walton, they're very uh, conscientious. I know that they'll be following up on a couple of the issues that came up. And the, the last thing that I would say to the uh, Department of Public Health, I think that uh, the further an analysis of the data that, that you have, I think, would be really helpful. Uh, and if there are ways that you can create uh, additional strategies in terms of how to address the needs of some of these populations, I think that would be very helpful. So to you, Supervisor Kim. Thank you, um, Supervisor Campos. Um, I just want to thank all the members of the public um, that came today. It was a lengthy hearing, as always, because this is such, um, it's a, a very important issue and an issue with a ton of meat and a lot of different angles to look at it. Um, and I think that, um, you know, beyond the meetings that we've been engaging in, it is so important to have members of the public um, actively engage in this issue. And also, this is an opportunity for us to educate the rest of the board, as well as members of the public um, that are watching, um, uh, that are watching and, and wanting to learn more about how we can address homelessness um, here in our city. And I just want to thank folks for coming to share your stories. And I know that so many of you are incredibly busy um, or have families and other needs. So thank you for spending your time with us to help advise us on this issue. Um, I just want to reiterate again, um, this hearing was called initially because of the drafting of um, a potential set of uniform rules for a shelter. Um, it, it caused you know, a really big conversation and dialogue really around um, issues that have been longstanding um, within our shelter system about how we provide care um, to individuals that live on our streets. And I think that this conversation has evolved um, to something far bigger than what the sh hearing request was initially about, which is about whether we should have uniform rules or not and what should be in those rules, um, to being a conversation of what do those rules expose in terms of the gaps that we have in our shelter system. And I think one of the largest ones that we see um, is our ability to pri provide health care services and also rapid rehousing um, from our shelter system afterwards. Um, so I just want to outline, summarize some of the things that I heard and some of our next steps after this hearing. One, of course, is what we've talked about, which is creating a different model um, from 
uh, from these conversations. Um, of course, adding upon the work that's already happening, the three full-time roving nurses that are in our shelter system, um, having enhanced medical care professionals on our hot teams, um, which I think is a welcome addition. And of course, the medical respite, um, our office did put that in our budget add back list last June um, to do a design and planning grant this fiscal year um, so we can open up um, uh, an additional 20 beds in the medical respite shelter um, hopefully next year. I'm also hearing on top of that um, that we'd like to see a way to have enhanced services um, in our existing shelters. Um, I, I had said over 50% um, of our uh, homeless or our shelter residents are older. Actually, I didn't have the data in front of me, but it is 57.2% are between the ages of 40 and 59. 57% um, are between the ages of 40 and 59. And 9.6% is above the age of 60. So we're talking about 60% of our shelter residents that are over the age of 40 um, and not thinking of our shelters as a place where actually our, our seniors are staying um, and how, how can we really think about that. And um, what I'm hearing uh, from the community is a need for additional resources, even just for the existing services that we expect our shelters to provide. Um, a look, looking at uh, restorative practices um, within our shelter system. I know this is something that um, Supervisor Mar and I and Compost are very familiar with from the work that we did actually at the school district many years ago to bring restorative justice as an alternative to expulsions and suspensions. So keeping our kids in the classroom instead of pushing them out. Uh, I think that's a very similar kind of look that we're talking about here um, and and um, and also um, opportunities for more rapid rehousing which is unfortunately getting even more expensive for a city as it is um, for our residents as well finally I'll just mention I know um, former supervisor Bevan Dufty is working on a new model that's set to open next month in March um, the navigation center of about or roughly that time um, where we're also trying to intake um, individuals that haven't um, been traditionally in our shelter system either because they're with dogs and wheelchairs and groups um, and couples um, and hopefully that will you know we'll learn some very interesting things from that um, from that pilot over the next year um, but this conversation continues um, really looking forward to um, working with human service agencies Department of Public Health mayor's office disability and all of our stakeholders both the service providers and our clients that are on our streets or formerly on our streets um, to continue to refine and work on a better quality um, system. And I, I think it's really important that, um, that it's not a blame game. I think that everyone is under-resourced, whether it's Human Service Agency um, or Department of Public Health. And you know, we as policymakers really need to think about how to better resource um, our agencies to be able to provide um, the quality of services that so many of you expect and deserve. Um, as a form of respect um, and in acknowledging the humanity of all of our residents. So um, thank you for the time. Um, I think it's really important that we were able to delve into that, this issue. And our office um, would love to take names of folks that haven't been involved in meetings, felt like they haven't been invited. Um, we would love to take your contact information. So um, please come to my office to just add your name um, so that we can include you um, in future conversations. Supervisor Kim, would you like to file this item, or do you want to continue it? What, do you, what would you like to do? Um, I, I'm going to make a I'll make a motion to file at this time. Um, if we need to do another request, um, I think it's going to be different than just being about the uniform rules, yeah. which is what the hearing request was originally limited to. Um, and I think that um, it deserves another conversation, but probably under a different title. 
So, Supervisor Christensen, would you have a motion then? Uh, motion by Supervisor Christensen, if we can take that without objection. Uh, again, we want to thank everyone for coming out. Thank you for your time. Uh, you said, you know, the, the age 40, 40 is actually pretty young. Uh, 40s are the new 30s. But we do want to thank everyone for coming out. Uh, Mr. Clerk, is there any other business before this committee? There are no more items, Mr. Chair. Thank you. The meeting is adjourned.